welcome to Ludicrously Specific, an audio podcast distributed via the internet that discusses three feature-length motion pictures that share an unlikely or obscure connection. My name's Doug, and my favorite American president in film or TV is played by Terry Crews in the movie Idiocracy, Dueno <laughs> Elizondo Mountain Dew Herbert Camacho. Wow. Uh, <laughs> that was a mouthful. <laughs> my name is Darren, and my favorite blah, 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 blah president in TV or movie, because I realize there's no way I can remember that whole thing, <laughs> is Martin Sheen from The West Wing as President Bartlett. And uh, my name is Steve, and my favorite fictional US president in film or TV is President Tug Benson from... Hot Shots Part Deux. Oh, yeah. <laughs> As played by Lloyd Bridges. Oh, Lloyd oh, Bridges. No, <laughs> I went there. Yes, it is. Oh, Not right. on any of those top ten presidential movie <laughs> presidents and movie and TV lists on the internet because they're all wrong. And I'm right. Right. And, <laughs> and why, do you ask, are we talking about presidents? Because it's biopics of presidents, right? Oh, right. Close, you know, we, very close. I watched that John Adams mm. series and prep for this. <laughs> <laughs> You've wasted your time. <laughs> That's well, not the first time. <laughs> <laughs> because, and I'm taking a deep breath here, <clears throat> tonight we're looking at <gasps> movies watched by Jimmy Carter while president on consecutive days that feature people he had or would have had Real life connections with. Ah. Yes. <laughs> Reaches for beer. <laughs> hmm. um, I, know, I know you're thinking, gentle listener, who, who came up with this concept and how do we know it's fucking Doug. what Jimmy Carter watched? It's fucking Doug. Well, let me... Let me... <laughs> Doug, please explain. Okay, so a couple things in my defense. First of all, I found the list and then I found three... And I found uh, somebody had put it on Letterboxd, incidentally, but a fellow named Matt Novak has been researching this extensively and is writing a book on not just Jimmy Carter, but ah. what all the presidents have watched... Uh, movie-wise, while they've been in office, what they've what they've enjoyed, who they've watched it with, and what that says about their presidencies. So uh, this is our <laughs> pilot episode for a new series that's coming out once yes, the book comes out. Yeah, no, we're going to be watching every single movie that a president's ever watched. <laughs> Presidentially uh, specific, exactly. But, um, <laughs> And, and I first this first came up because somebody was trying to work out what movies Donald Trump had seen in office. Um, because and there's and and you know there's been many presidents. I mean Ronald Reagan obviously, but there's many presidents who have taken advantage of the nice theater and um, brought people there and watched movies mm-hmm. and kept up with pop culture. And Obama would famously you know and still does post movies at the end lists at the end of the year that you're like oh he's watched you know quite a few things. Um, and so it's always you know just an interesting sort of bit of philosophy of who this person is some insight into them and so um i think i was looking for an excuse to watch wait until dark which had been on my pile for a while uh and i was going through lists that it was on and i found that that list and i um uh-huh. scanned and i saw on consecutive days there were two other films which i won't spoil yet that were next to it that i hadn't seen that i wanted to see and um there were some other potential Stretches, but um, I'm, I'm glad that's the the reason because I did mention this uh, to one of my workmates of what our theme coming up, and he was what 
Were you looking into Jimmy Carter's internet history? (laughs) (laughs) I think I'll need to explain that Jimmy Carter was the U.S. president from 1977 to 1981. Which makes it really relevant to now. Yeah. Oh, right, because that's been our real focus. (laughs) Hey, Jimmy Stewart is a race car mechanic and driver. That's what we need, cutting edge commentary (laughs) on speed. I'm glad you didn't go for the the movies that Donald Trump watched, because we would have, apparently he's famously known for watching action movies but getting Eric or Donald to fast forward through the plot which really shows the attention span of a certain man and now I've said his name I'm never going to say that again on this podcast we'll just refer to him as the former president. Um, just a little bit on that, also a bit, but while we're there, I, I got a, took a paragraph from, uh, I found an article that um, Matt Novak had written on Gizmodo, where he uh, enumerates this list. Unfortunately, he has links to the PDF on the Carter presidential website, presidential library website of his diary for all of those days, but the website has since been updated and none of those links work. No. So I can't tell you what he was doing on these days, but we'll go through movie by movie which days they were. But um, his quote is, It seems like Carter would watch anything and everything with over 400 movies screened at the White House and Camp David while he was in office. Some of the screenings were private affairs with just the president and first lady. Other time a movie was that night's entertainment for ghosts for guests at the White House. And possibly ghosts. <laughs> and, April, help. and April 30th, 1979, screening of the Ingmar Bergman film Autumn Sonata notes that there were approximately 48 members of the White House staff on hand to watch. Wow. So, um, I think we would have gone on well with Jimmy Carter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, and and we potentially still can. He's, yeah, he's still, still alive. alive. He's yeah. still out there, yeah. yeah. Um, but anyway, before we uh, dive into Jimmy Carter's viewing habits and and his unlikely connections to the people involved with these three, which ha- was something that I discovered when I dug a little deeper. Um, what have you been uh, watching that Jimmy Carter might not have seen? <laughs> so, in other words, we're comparing you to a president and you're found wanting. Okay. <laughs> well, I, I don't think I that. <laughs> no, no, I said that. Yeah. Well, that's can, accurate, I'm taking yes. credit for it. That's fine. Uh, welcome to my is, house, guys. <laughs> welcome to one ropey, angry episode of Ludicrous <laughs> 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 This is what happens when we do our episodes two weeks apart instead of a month apart <laughs> and also when we do it before we've watched a movie instead of after because uh, uh, we've still got energy that. yeah <laughs> it's definitely too much energy right now but we and we even have got beers tonight and they're yep. american pale ale so uh keeping the thing yes well it's only been two weeks but i have managed to watch more than three movies uh, which for me is actually pretty good uh the one i want to talk about first was a random very random pick because uh, I do the, what I call cinema Z, which myself and three others, we just join up, we watch a movie on Cosme, uh, take it off YouTube directly, and we make fun of it, Mystery Science Theatre style, uh, and chat. And I had picked a movie, and I forget almost instantly now what it was that I was picked, and it was something I'd seen before, knew it was going to be funny. Clicked it, the link, put it onto Cosme, and it came up with, this movie is age-restricted and will not be played. So I literally went back to the YouTube and in a near panic, went to click Blood Rage, which is the right. Thanksgiving slasher movie that we all know and love in mm-hmm. our group, and missed it by just that much <laughs> and clicked the movie next to it. And we ended up watching a movie called The Chilling. And it was <laughs> the best mistake I've made all year. Oh, wow. And I've made a few of them. But The Chilling, actually, it's from 1989. 
directed by those household names Dellen News and Jack A. Sonseri. Oh, yes. Uh, Them. No idea what else they have directed. And here's the here's the cast list, and this is why I didn't turn it off instantly when I realised I made a mistake. Linda Blair, Dan Haggerty, oh. Troy Donahue, oh. and a bunch of other people that aren't any of those people. And it is an, it's a 1980s... Is video he a boozy grizzly Adams, Mr. He's, Dan Haggerty? He's a, he's a boozy grizzly security guard in this one. So Excellent. he basically just played, basically if grizzly Adams came down from the mountain and got himself a day job, or and a night a job pack. in this case. And a six-pack, so, yes. At a freezing so, works? At, at a freezing, Is that where the chilling works comes <laughs> At a cryogenics factory, uh, a cryogenics oh, plant. Oh, Doug, you were so close. Oh, right. Nothing's ever gone wrong at a cryogenics <laughs> factory, though. <laughs> so it's obviously Fine. just an observational <laughs> drama. Right after that, they, they, they put the cards on the table because they, they pan across the cryogenic, uh, you know, people, the, all the frozen corpses in there, and there's Walt Disney's uh, tube as they go past, and there's the little eggs. <laughs> and it, it seemed to be kind of a... That started was I'm looking at just going. I, I don't really don't know the plot of this. I've absolutely picked this randomly. It looks like there's a bit of an evil doctor because he was one of these guys that says things like, "Yes, of course we can help you with your husband's problem." And the word "evil" flashes on his forehead. A and bit of an evil doctor. Yeah, it doesn't literally flash there, but he right. literally should have been wearing a t-shirt that said, "I'm the evil doctor." Right. And Linda Blair's in there paying some bills, and she's she's not the biggest part of it. She sort of appears in the start. Like her role is to pay bills. Or no. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I can just you can just see her basically just walking off out at every shot and just going, "Where's my check?" Because yeah. she wasn't overly invested in it. It was definitely in her downtime, and then she disappears in the film, and Dan Haggerty becomes the star of the film in the middle of it. He's the the whole middle third, of course, and. The whole plot, basically, is that there's people that are putting their loved ones into a cryogenic storage unit, and then they lose the power in the storage unit. And I made a little crack on there going, oh, and then lightning hits them and they all turn into zombies. Guess what happened? <laughs> lightning hits the pods, and they all come back to life as cryogenically frozen zombies. And enough said. This was yeah. right in my wheelhouse. I had an absolute blast watching it. It's dumb as a bag of very dumb rocks. Right. But it is just Excellent. a lot of fun. I mean, it falls apart nearly, unlike a lot of these ones do. It gets it's very underlit, so I don't expect to see the makeup very, very well. They're Would that done. be a good double with elves? We haven't talked about elves because elves have been. Yeah, that's does that involve cryogenics or just no, just, or just, just, just Dan Haggerty, just Dan Haggerty. Dan Haggerty. <laughs> I've, I've, I've literally forgotten the name of that um, Chuck Norris movie that we watched. That was at the cryogenics. Cryogenics. Oh, Ooh. Silent Rage. Silent, Silent Rage. Rage. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. So it did much better than Silent Rage. Much more interesting than Silent Rage. And it just it it continually gets dumber and dumber as it goes along. But unfortunately, Good. as it goes on and on, the VHS tape it was ripped from degenerates, and the lighting gets worse and worse. So the the copy on YouTube's not great. I don't think it will have a Blu-ray release, but it was. It was a perfectly acceptable use of an hour and 23 minutes or thereabouts. So. Good even just got a Blu-ray release oh, today. So I think to we that. need to... Uh... Uh, sorry, sorry. Gediven. <laughs> there is no other way to say it. The, he, he, he wrote it out. Uh, the title is has no, no gaps. Gediven? Gediven. Gediven, yeah. If you haven't seen Gediven, uh, or Gediven, or... Or um, um, road, what's the other title? Road, road to Revenge. Road to Revenge. Or Champagne, champagne and, and something. Yeah, yeah Champagne some, and something. Some new title on it. Just... It, See the fucking movie. Basically, go to Darren's place in six to eight weeks because it will be turning up there <laughs> very soon. 
If you it want to is... see Wingshauser lose his soul on camera oh. against the worst actor in a movie it's, ever, it's the ultimate but vanity we'll see project, the most furious, coked-up ironing scenes you've ever, ever seen in, in celluloid. Basically, they paid Wingshauser by putting a huge tray of coke on the table, ramming his face into it and going, action. So it's <laughs> uh, just dust him off, send him on in. It is, it is a wonderful piece of vanity trash. And you'll have the shimmy shake stuck in your head for months. Absolutely. Afterwards. And and it's uh, John DeHart also um, wrote and sings all the songs, including the songs where he's yes, making love. Yes, there's more than one of them. <laughs> he's making, yes, he's uh, making love and his dulcet tones are <laughs> playing over the... And as we saw a week or two ago... Um, person writing, directing, and writing the theme song always goes incredibly well. <laughs> Doesn't it, Mr. Wilde? Uh, yes. <laughs> the Joker's caught out. Uh, when a man loves a shark. <laughs> oh, I can see that. Okay. That's, that's a Motown oh, right. song, isn't it? Well, we managed it? to talk about three films. Three films at once. So we're off to uh, yeah. usual fantastic stuff. All right. Darren. Well, I'm going to talk about the film I saw most recently, uh, which was just last night at the Hollywood Avondale. Shout out to... To Matt and the gang, um, Glenn Gary Glenn Ross, mm. James Foley, <laughs> James Foley. Not Never usually the it. name that people like first go to when they mention that Absolutely. film. Absolutely, <laughs> it's um, and if you dig deep or dig even shallowly, uh, you'll find that James Foley directed the last two. Um, uh, oh God, uh, Shades, Fifty Shades of Grey, Fifty Shades films. Ah. Which doesn't really connect to Glengarry Glenn Ross. <laughs> no, I hope not. <laughs> it's, I loved it. I absolutely... Yeah. And you'd never seen it before. Never seen it before. How it, many quotes did you recognize going through? Uh, Second prize is a set of steak knives. Absolutely. Third prize is you're fired. Go to lunch, George. Coffee is for closers. Is Go to lunch. Thought, yeah. I've never seen the movie. I know uh, all those quotes. It's like, it's, <laughs> it's what? Jack what? Lemmon, Al yeah. Pacino... All these actors... Kevin Spacey. Yes. And, and Alec Baldwin just shows up for ten minutes before he was... Best performance yeah. in his career. Yeah. It's ten minutes at the very beginning of the movie, and I don't think he has ever bettered that. Yeah. It's just... Everyone is just at the absolute top of their game. It's David Mamet's script, so it's yep. very um, punchy and quotable and... Um, Incredibly entertaining and a gut punch of a, a sad ending. Um, and it's just, yeah, wow, what a film. I was. It's, it will be one that I will watch fairly regularly, I imagine. Cause it's very rewatchable. I've probably seen it. Three times. Well, it's, I, I mean, it's a it's a filmed play, and there's very little attempt to make it look yeah. anything less than that. It does. They haven't really been able to open it up much. Yeah, and they have, but they don't really. They don't try. Need to. No. Because it is like when you have those performers mm. giving those performances with that script. Yes. It's like your job as the director is stay the hell out of the way. That's it. <laughs> you know, that your only job is do no harm. You know? <laughs> and David Mamet is his script is great, but he is not a his it's not natural in terms of how they speak. Yeah. But that's accepted. With a David yeah. Mamet script, yeah. you accept the fact that it is going to be hyper real or hyper whatever it is well it's just a weird stylization yes yeah i try to remember if it was the spanish prisoner where one of the people 
is asked why they're waiting, and they say, my troika was pursued by wolves. And that's, like, the ultimate, like, <laughs> what the hell kind of... Um, and, you know, and through whether it's State of Maine or Spartan or, you mm. know, any of those movies that he's directed, you know, there's always this kind of... Oh, that or the quotable line from Heist, um, everybody needs money. That's why it's called money, which is just like kind of <laughs> like if you ask David Mamet to write a quote for a trailer, it would be in the film. He's like, OK, I'm going to put this and they're going to use it. And then you're going to have to realize they have to figure out what it means. Fuck <laughs> Never get them to write your eulogy. That's the, what you're yeah. saying. There. But, I mean, <laughs> this cast, uh, Jack Lemmon is amazing. It's Al Pacino um, was nominated for Best Supporting Actor. Yeah. And actually won Best Actor in Scent of a Woman that same year. <laughs> Hoo-ha. <laughs> As they say, that's my best Still impression. Still haven't seen it. Oh, it's, it's worth it, I think. It's, yeah. it's, a lo- I it's so. worth a lot. I've got to say, admittedly, I haven't seen it in probably 15 years, but I remember seeing it right. a couple of times and enjoying it. But. It was a zeitgeisty film, I think. Mm. But it's... Um, and you've got um, Alan Arkin, who is hilarious without even trying. Um... Uh, there's Ed Harris, um, Kevin Spacey again. Jonathan Price yeah. has has a great role. It, he's not one of the salespeople. Actually, we haven't really explained the story. A bunch of salespeople are, um, have their jobs threatened, and then um, everything goes to further hell. Yes. <laughs> it's, so, so working in a call center like I used to. Okay, yeah, exactly. It's exactly. It's a, it's a cold call center. Cold and you call center. people, yeah. and, they, yeah. and there's these that. mythical leads that, that are the Glengarry leads that might um, yeah. be you know better leads than the uh, leads that people have because you know they're just calling whatever numbers they've been given that aren't very useful because yes i've been at a call center i know about yeah, that yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. oh good you're the excellent salesperson have these numbers you're yeah. you're you on the floor get the fuck over there and call the soul lady <laughs> and it, it has a really good it's an interesting score it's quite pervasive it's a jazz score but yeah i can't imagine it working on any other film than that yeah it's but it's it can be quite loud and it's quite over the top in terms of um, where where it's placed, but it works for that movie. It absolutely, it's just everything works. And it's um, and there's a, a fantastic scene. It's very hard to explain, so this will make good radio. Um, <laughs> with Alan Arkin and Ed Harris, uh, where Ed Harris is trying to convince Alan Arkin to. Uh, um, to uh, steal the leads and it's um, I don't think for about five minutes I don't think Alan Arkin actually finishes a sentence Ed Harris has the lion's share but Alan Arkin always comes in but never finishes the sentence and it is just it's just a masterclass great film loved it we'll watch it again was there a decent turnout Unfortunately not. Oh, I yeah. think there might have been about 25 people upstairs and I don't know how many down. But it was, yeah, it's worth seeing though. Um, so speaking of casts, I'm going to see if you guys know this one Ooh, from the cast. Test me. Okay. okay. Ed McMahon, Thelma Ritter, Ruby D, Brock Peters, Bo Bridges, Martin Sheen, Tony Musante. Oh, 
Could it be the landlord or no? No. No. It, we won't. We won't bore people with this. <laughs> this could go on for a while. It's the incident from 1967. Oh, Have you guys seen this film? Uh, I know not, of it. And Martin yeah. Sheen's a bastard, isn't he? Uh, well, he is one of two <laughs> bastards. So, yes. so the film starts with. Um, meeting uh, Martin Sheen, which I think in his first uh, screen role, and Tony Musante is two bastards bumming around New York and um, causing trouble and um, being clearly people not to be in the same room or subway train with. And then after about 10 minutes involving um, mugging a guy and some other petty crimes they say the night is still young and then the first music of the film comes in the incident comes on it's all black and white manhattan 19 late 1960s um and then we promptly ignore them for half an hour (laughs) as we meet the um unhappy people who are gradually getting on this car who are already unhappy with each Mm -hmm. other as they get on this train car and um and then once about 10 of them are on there uh, including Bo Bridges as a uh, uh, army, uh, arm, somebody in the armed forces who's mm-hmm. on sick leave because he's broke broken his arm, who's with another friend. He, there's a girl who's being kind of asked out on, by this guy who's putting the moves on her a bit too heavily. There's this unhappy family that are yelling at each other, and he, she's like, well, you know what? Why don't we just take a taxi home? It's like, oh, that's too expensive, but you made us stay out. You know, just like everybody's miserable. Right. And then there's an incident. Then, then, yes, Tony Musante <laughs> and Martin Schinken on it. And Tony Musante wasn't a name that I knew. Um, and then I looked up, and I'm like, oh, he's been in heaps of stuff that I've seen. He's very, and, um, and it's interesting that Martin Sheen is almost the beta of the two of those. Oh, and to right. see, so, so to see Tony. Musante stealing the scene not just from Martin Sheen but from all those other actors that I've mentioned um, including Brock Peters who plays uh, an African American who hates white people and so hangs out on this train just to watch the other white people get tormented. Uh, it's a pretty oh. dark film. Um, you, you don't say. Yeah. And hit that. You hit lead. Yeah. And um, it's directed by a guy named Larry Pierce, who I was not familiar with at all. Uh, it turned, and it, I think what's interesting about it is style wise, uh, it's he's a TV vet. Um, and it's a mix of like, there's a bit of street photography and kind of like black and white 16, it's all black and white, but like some kind of handheld stuff when the trains are coming that has that sort of kind of Cassavetes era kind of vibrancy. But um, so much of the stuff on the train, which I think was probably shot in a studio just carefully, um, they capture that whole, because um, it's all in one train car, the, mm-hmm. it becomes, you know, nobody can get in or out um, initially by coercion and then physically at all at a certain point um but that roving eye of attention up and down this train where it's like the you know, the camera blocking and movement and helps really just create that sense where you i mean i don't know if you guys have ever been on a train here like this but like in new york i've been on trains where it's like you know somebody who's not all right in the head comes on and you're just like 
I sit here and they will notice. And you, you know, they, they, yep. Yeah. Oh, yep. Been there. Not on train, but on buses. Been, sure. Been sure like, yeah. Been like that on trains. Yeah. yeah. And yep. so that's um, the nut and magnet. Yeah. 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 I've, and, got, I've taken a train through parts of Sydney, which ended up going through King's Cross, mm. which uh, is is full of nutters. Yeah. And yeah, you you don't make the eye contact because you don't mm. want to be the one that he decides he's going to talk to, eat mug. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. That sort of person. Yeah. Yeah. So I think I talk to eat, eat mug. Well, Those well, are yeah. the options. Is that in King's Cross? That's that's the options. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I was really surprised that like I, the only reason I'd even heard of this film was because last year Masters of Cinema put out a Blu-ray. Mm. Um, and I had thought about getting, I'm like, uh, sight unseen, you know, I only buy stupid horror films from 1989, sight unseen, <laughs> <laughs> uh, thanks vinegar syndrome. But, um, I, um, when the video store at Meadowbank went out of sale, I went out of business. This was floating in the classic section next to, uh, all oh. the much, uh, more pleasant titles that had been taken. And I'm like, oh, yep, yeah, let's give this a go. And yeah, I highly Highly recommend uh, as a great uneasy watch. Could this be um, shown as one of your um, your train marathon again? At another training day? It could be part of training day training too. Day two. But, uh, <laughs> the training. <laughs> yeah. Train happens. Yes. <laughs> it's a more convincing train movie than the Beyond the Door three. Anyway. Oh well, yes. So yeah. many are. <laughs> Like Thomas the Tank Engine. <laughs> God, look who's talking too. <laughs> now, did your train marathon include Runaway Train? No, because it had screened the week prior at Steve Austin. Yes, because I'd watched that a so, while back, and I really, I'd never seen that one. And I yeah, quite it's really good. It's yeah. a good film. It's a really fun film. I, I, I found it a bit over the top for me, um, but it's like, it's a Kurosawa script. You can kind of, yeah. mm-hmm. it's that kind of big chest rending kind of thing <laughs> yeah. and then you give those actors the chance to tear into those kind of parts and you know it's it's just lucky the train wasn't made of ham that's all i have to say and john glenn is the um Void? as the no john glenn is the john h glenn oh, as right, the okay. villainous um slash heroic but more likely villainous um sheriff who or um is he a county DA or, or not something. interesting. <laughs> He's amazing. Um, he he just really it's it's quite every char- every actor is big in it, mm. but it's but yeah, it's, it, I that was one that really stuck with me. That one, mm. it's um, especially its ending. I thought mm. was was great. But anyway, but it's anyway. Um, you again. Back to me again. Okay, <laughs> pointing at me. There we go. Visual things. Great. Uh, now, a uh, couple of ones <laughs> I just like want to give. Talking a... about a visual medium. Even though we're just doing the three, oh, there's two little ones I just want to give a real quick shout out to the movies that I've watched. It's my room, my couch, my rules. Okay, no rules. Uh, Mitchell's versus the machines. Uh, oh, just yeah. dropped on Netflix, mm. which was family movie night this week, and that is phenomenal. And. If you've seen the trailer and you enjoyed the trailer, you're going to enjoy the movie. If you've seen Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, I think it's that level of good. And it's Lord and Miller who wrote it. Who wrote, wrote it. Wrote the same one. And it's got uh, mm. so much heart to the movie. It's just fantastic. Enough said. Go see it. It's, it's available for anyone who's got Netflix, which I think is everyone in the world. At I this will point lock in time. that shit down <laughs> this weekend. Uh, the previous uh, week's uh, uh, family movie night was uh, The Cabin in the Woods. Uh, because I'm How old's good your dad. Kid there, eh? Nearly 16, 12 and a half. <laughs> <laughs> and he 
frigging <laughs> loved it. Uh, it's about my fourth time, I think, seeing Cabin in the Woods, and it still holds up every time I oh, see yeah. it. Oh, yeah. Uh, Love so that film. Definitely see that. But uh, in between those, basically, after watching The Chilling, uh, I decided I'd watch one more movie that night when uh, Cinema Z finished, and I rewatched They Live because it is a movie that is endlessly rewatchable and I think gets better with age. Yeah. So John Carpenter, of course, uh, Rowdy Roddy Piper in the main role mm-hmm. as Nada. And, of course, um, the amazing... And I did time at this time, five-minute and 45-second-long fight scene wow. in the middle. Is that all? That it feels long. It feels long. I originally always used to think of it as a seven-minute-long Because it's so violent. It's, it's, sort of, just, yeah. it's the original Avengers fight, isn't it's it? Just, it's the superheroes fighting... Uh, each other, yeah. Fighting each other, but eventually they're going to come... Uh, they're going to be on each other, on yeah, the same of course, side. And he's fighting Keith David, who is but Keith David. But it's so is, violent. Yeah, yeah. Is such a... You know, just a solid character actor that you put him in anything, and he just le- raises the level. And a- apparently, this was only supposed to be a small fight scene in the middle of this this movie. Mm. But Roddy went, "No, I'm a wrestler. Let's choreograph this, and then show John Carpenter what we've done." And John Carpenter went, "Let's roll." Yeah. And so they spent like a week filming it instead of a day and a half. So it's it's for those of you who haven't seen it. Uh, Why? <laughs> I, I don't know if anyone who listens to a podcast hasn't seen it, except maybe my sister in Australia. Hi. Uh, it's a 1988, I believe, 1988. Uh, yeah, 88. Sci-fi uh, based on uh, a short story uh, called 8 O'Clock in the Morning, which I have written as a great little show, a short story, of uh, a man who comes to realise that the people in power around us aren't actually people. And at eight o'clock in at, the morning. At o'clock, well, actually, no, eight o'clock in the morning. At eight o'clock in the morning, that's actually the the big capper in the story. Oh, and it's a spoiler. He's but he gets a call telling him that he's going to die at eight o'clock in the morning ah. after he discovers that aliens are running the world. Right, and he says, "No, I'm not." He starts the what basically topples it. But the final line is, "But John, I think his name has never got to see it. He died of a heart attack at precisely eight o'clock that morning." So right. it's got oh. a, that's all it's got a beautiful it's little nice. twilighty twist that's to it. Really nice. Yeah. And, of course, here we get Roddy Roddy Piper not dying of a heart attack, mm. but going out Roddy Roddy Piper style, all guns blazing. Mm. And it's it's just, as I say, it's one of these movies that I can watch any time, no matter how yeah. tired I am. If it's, I think I watched that at close to midnight, and it was just a great relax-myself-off-to-sleep movie. But it's it's just that the whole Reagan era, the, the capitalists, you know, are, are, are running everything, has gotten, I think their message has gotten stronger and stronger. Yeah. That you know we can't, oh, yeah. yeah. That we can't just be going. Okay, we're just going to let more, Obey, more power consume. go up. Obey, consume, yeah. reproduce. Um, yes, bubble gum and ass. Exactly, bubble gum and ass. I do. I do love that line. I have it on a mm-hmm. t-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the um the last time I saw it was in a cinema in Paris in March 2019, and where oh, it was wow. released as um Invasion Los Angeles. I think it was yeah called, and there was a local cinema doing um. Uh, they were doing the 4K uh, right. screenings of all the Carpenter retros, and um, I took my wife to see it. Who's not, um, you know, she she likes some genre stuff, but it was you know, especially with older stuff, it wasn't necessarily a sure bet. And she loved it. Uh, she just, you know thought it was so fun and such a clever conceit. Um, without spoiling it again for the one no. person who hasn't seen it. So, um, but, yeah, so I, yeah, I mean, highly rated. Yeah, and Meg Foster is fantastic because she oh, gives yes. such a weirdly otherworldly performance. Which she mm. always does. Yeah, <laughs> and in a movie where you're going, now some people on this aren't people, 
but yet she's a people, but she's not acting like a people right, because yeah. she's got those those weirdly slightly glowy eyes. That well, yes, have her been, eyes have been. Um, yeah, it's, it's such a it's such a, a, a amazingly good casting choice to put her mm. right in that middle of that movie. So yeah, it's it's yeah. it's, it's going to be one of my favorites for a real long time. And it's supposedly like was his contract breaker or something. Right, he just want, needed to. He was trying to get out of his contract, so he was just trying to knock him out as quickly as possible, which is why that and um, Prince of Darkness. Um, came out back to back so quickly and those are two movies. of my favorite Carpenter movies yeah Darren so. showed, uh, showed me uh, Prince of Darkness because that was one I think I'd never seen I mean I look back at the mm. the, the pre starting to fall off the cliff John Carpenter right yeah hello mm. looking at you vampires uh, yeah before that that was about the only one I really hadn't seen and yeah really enjoyed that it was oh, like a birthday flick, I think yeah that was ago. that was one of our first birthdays so yeah. that's about 10 years ago or something mm. you look not like a you haven't aged well if you've only had 10 years worth of birthdays. I hate, I hate you. <laughs> anyway, right. Well, Heartbreak Kid, I still haven't seen it. I saw this um about two weeks before Charles Grodin passed, and uh, it's yeah, um. I, I actually felt quite sad when I, I learned mm. that Charles mm. Grodin had, was no no more. It's just his films have always always made me laugh. It's one in particular is playing at the Hollywood this weekend, Midnight Run. Yeah, uh, it'll be my first opportunity to see it on the big screen. I've loved that film for so long. Scenes filmed in New Zealand. It's um, yeah, it's just tremendous. And Yafit Koda. And Yafit so, Koda, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and Robert De Niro is legitimately oh, yeah, funny. <laughs> it's it's um, legitimately so. And and mainly because he's not really trying at all to be mm. funny. He's he is the straight man in the. He's a he's a smart ass, definitely. But he's the straight man of the in the movie where Charles Grodin is doing doing the lion's share of the the joke the comedy but it's just it has everything and john ashton as the as, is it marvin the idiot i'm watching it Sorry. someday I'll, let you know. <laughs> oh, yeah. well, I'll be there too yeah well i won't but i'll probably watch it then but, but john ashton <laughs> was from um from beverly hills cop as the um as the cop with Judge Reinhold. And what's the... interesting about it is neither of those films are the Heartbreak Kid. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, I'm back on track, and it's uh, no one noticed the join. <laughs> we don't edit these it's things. It's like much. I was talking about it all the time. Heartbreak Kid. It's <laughs> it's great. It's um, Elaine May directed. Did she write as well? I'm pretty sure she did, but um, I could be wrong. But okay. uh, I, I was wrong once, and then I discovered I was right all along. Uh, uh, <laughs> it's been one of those days, folks. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a it's a, a a story to squirm by. It's about uh, Charles Grodin has. Um, um, is marries the girl of his dreams or the girl of a dream um, and once they're married he um, very quickly on the road to their honeymoon 
starts to realise that she might not be the kind of woman he, he wants. Uh, even quicker, uh, when they're out at their honeymoon, he uh, sees and instantly falls in love with uh, a Sybil Shepherd. And, I mean, Sybil Shepherd, as the way she is in this movie, it's pretty easy to understand how anyone could do that. But it's just the, the comedic moments, uh, they're so very much... I couldn't imagine anyone but Charles Grodin getting any laughs from from the, these lines. It's uh, there's there's one scene where he um, goes into the deceitfulness of cauliflower. Uh, uh, I'm sure, that was a Yes album cover, wasn't it? <laughs> it's uh, and it's uh, Eddie Elbert plays um, Sybil Shepherd's. Um, very disapproving father. It's just... It's one I don't really want to talk about too much because it's something that I think has to be seen. It's not very easy to find. I had to work quite hard to find it. But it's... It's just a... It's a gem. It's... um, But not everyone will like it because it's... The humour is... Sort of, I mean, Charles Grodin is a terrible. His character is a terrible person. He is absolutely. It's. But Charles Grodin could play that. I mean, if, if you see yeah, his interviews it. when he's on David Letterman, straight face playing a guy who doesn't like being on talk shows. Yes. And apparently he was the loveliest guy, but he would get on there and he would do the same shtick each time. Where Letterman would ask him a question and he'd just glare at him with a withering disdain and the audience would fall off their chairs laughing <laughs> that, that's so. it it's uh, and and he was actually one of the the big talk show uh, guys he uh, even had his own yeah yeah mm. it, it's it is a great film it's um it's very very funny but it's certainly not for everyone but it's mm. and it's it, it kind of feels it's I, I felt like I was examining how I would be in situations right. like that. It felt like it was quite confronting in that way. And I just did some quick instant research, actually written by Bruce J. Friedman, the writer of the Gene Wilder, Richard Pryor, Pryor comedy Stir Crazy ah. and Splash. The not Gene Wilder. Not Gene Wilder. <laughs> no, also Dr. Detroit, but I don't think that's a good thing to have on the CV. So yeah, that was terrible. Oh. I never saw it. It was the it was the intriguing R-rated movie when I was growing up. Um, <laughs> Dan in Aykroyd. part because yes. yeah. yeah, in part because Dan Aykroyd, in part because Detroit and I lived in Detroit and it seemed like there must be some significance to this. I'm sure there probably isn't. Um, oh, probably not. No. No, I'm not looking at what um, at the uh, well, it's actually set in Chicago, apparently. So, <laughs> go fig. Yeah. <laughs> well, wow. I tell, tell you what about Charles Grodin. Um, I, I did a little bit of looking on um, YouTube to see what else was out there, and um, came across or came across again a uh, there's a mini series he did in 1986-87 called Fresno. And it's a takeoff of uh, Dallas and Dynasty, right, yes. <laughs> and it uh, it stars Charles Grodin, Carol Burnett, um, uh, Jeffrey Tambor, or no, no the no. Um, oh Jeffrey Jones, yeah Jeffrey, Jeffrey Jones. Jones, yeah, it's um, Dabney Coleman, 
and it's um, and it's about two um, raisin baron uh, <laughs> families, <laughs> and it's oh, wow. uh, it's brilliant. It's very very funny. I've watched about um, an hour and a half of the three and a half hour uh, mini series, but it's it's a lot of fun. And again, it just shows all the wonderful shallowness that yes. that. Uh, Charles Grodin could play, and yet you'd still liked him, and that was that's the key to uh, Heartbreak Kid. Is he was he's a horrible person mm. about eighty nine percent of the time, but you still like him, and it's it's weird. It's a kick yourself type movie if you're that flexible. Oh. <laughs> it's a man that had to play off against a, a Saint Bernard for three consecutive movies, and apparently came out quite well on the other side. <laughs> so, <laughs> I only ever saw the first one. I, I don't think I ever saw any of them, but. Um, yeah, he has a strange... For somebody who seems so deeply cynical, he goes strangely deep in kids' movies. <laughs> and I, I've been really uncertain as to how far to investigate. Well, clearly that's just dollar-dollar um, bills, y'all. <laughs> as, as I'm always saying. As, as you are. We always ask yes, you to stop. Yes, you are quite... <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the, the last Charles Grodin-related factoid before we move on is the um, film critic Mike D'Angelo, who I follow on Twitter, um, has watched pretty much the entire run of the first... I don't know, like 15 or 20 years of Saturday Night Live. And he swears that the single best guest host ever was Charles Grodin, who did the whole episode as if he had showed up to none of the rehearsals and didn't actually know what was going to happen (laughs) and did the whole thing that way, including the sketches. Wow! <laughs> and somehow pulls it off. We gotta dig that. Oh my yeah. god! I need so, to find yes, that. We yes, are, we are definitely digging that up at some stage. Um, <laughs> so I have I haven't made it to the Hollywood since their latest uh, foray back into film showing. Although I'll be coming this Sunday, but I have um, been quite heartened by the uh, general repertory scene in Auckland and the other two films I'm going to mention. Um, one and then two are both from other cinema screenings. So one of them was um, part of the Korean New Wave retrospective. I can't believe it's been around so long that it's a retrospective, but that um, (laughs) the Academy are doing of um, films of um, filmmakers like Chan-wook Park and Bong Joon-ho and um, most especially um, Kim Ji-woon, who's represented by two films, uh, I Saw the Devil, and uh, the opening night film of the cinema of the season, which was last week, um, A Tale of Two Sisters. And I have you guys seen A Tale of Two Sisters? I have not. I know of it, but I have. It, it's I had it recommended to me. It yeah. is phenomenal, and well, it, there is, it is. It's been recommended. It's, I've, I've, I've seen it. I'd seen it twice or three times on DVD before, but I never seen it on the big screen. Uh, and it wasn't the greatest presentation. I'm guessing it. It, it was either maybe. SD or really early like HD kind of master didn't, but also there's a lot of films from that era that um, or was it just D? Um, there are a lot of films from that we era like that, that one. <laughs> yeah, well, what, what does that mean? Definition? The joke, the joke has to work, you see. Oh, no. Uh, it's just, just a minor thing about humor. Is it Anyone has to listening work. to any of the previous podcasts will know it doesn't have to have. <laughs> well, it has, if, if you tra- Oh, God. Uh, anyway, I'm not even going to talk about it. Just like Tale of Two Sisters, spooky as shit. Uh, I mean, amazing. Uh, design and production and just a sumptuous film, very much a um, two sisters come to the country after uh, to live with their father after their mother has died and 
they've um, gone through some kind of trauma and they're trying to recuperate and it doesn't go well and there's a ghost in the house and an evil stepmother and it is such an exercise in nonstop tension. Like at the end of it, like the first thing somebody behind me said was, oh my God, that was so intense. And literally 10 seconds later, like down the row, somebody who hadn't heard that person said, oh my God, that was so intense. <laughs> and there's, and there's very, there's relatively not that much that actually happens. Like you could probably cut the actual quote unquote scary moments into like seven minutes and it's an almost two hour film, but it's just the wow. suffused creeping dread of the whole thing like it it was one of those i was a little worried when it started it was a relatively well attended one and it seemed like there were a few chatty people and within five minutes everything was just sucked out of the room as people were like this is not gonna be one of those fun bong joon ho movies this isn't gonna be this isn't gonna be one of those wacky korean this is gonna be dark yeah so um yeah, it, it, there be unfortunately with these new um, academy screenings, they tend to do only one screening, and mm. so um, yeah, I was it's talking with, um, with Gorian, Gorian yeah. um, yesterday, and he was uh, he was saying that that's that works for them. They mm. make their money and then they move on, right? So it's so they'll probably be doing that, yeah, and continuing mm. to. Battle of the Sisters is one I always used at the time, but here mentioned in the same breath as audition. And so, and that's mm. coming around about the same time. And, There's yeah. actually a similar, it's nowhere near as gory as Audition. Mm. And actually, like, A Tale of Two Sisters is much more stylistically coherent. But there is a being in a bag in both of oh, uh, them, right. a, a human being put into a large sack that features into both of them. So that might be the... Wow. Um, because uh, the time they came out, it was kind of when a lot of the, the you know, the... the yeah. Off kilter film notes like ourselves were going from Japanese to Korean. Yeah, was it was the, the J horror to K horror switch, and yeah, yeah and then all that kind of quickly went downhill with knockoff after knockoff, like phone. Yeah, you know, like, there's, there's, I mean, and still, the I mean, when you're looking yeah. at some of the ones that are coming out now, and it's kind of like, well, okay, we've run out of ideas. Can we get the kid from Ringu and throw him in with with you know the girl from? You know, oh yeah, well they've done that, haven't they? There's, yeah, there's Sadako, Sadako versus uh, versus oh the Grudge, yeah, the yeah, grudge, yeah. yeah, and which to me is just kind of like you know you don't need a Superman versus but Batman apparently that's Japanese good uh, I've heard oh, really? I've heard really interesting reviews um, I think it was Alric Kane Rebecca and um, uh, Rebecca McKendry um, I think they were talking about it on one of their podcasts mm. Mm. But, I mean there's, there's so many of them those did come out that um, you, they got so played out so quickly with you know, as you say yeah. with one after the other hitting until eventually it was kind of like, well, you know, you've seen one, you've seen them all. And I'm yeah. one of the people that saw The Ring the first time and was completely underwhelmed because yeah. I heard a year's worth of hype on it before I got around to watching it. And then I watched it and I went, well, nothing's happening. Yeah. And then I got to the scene which I'd seen parodied so many times. It's like, yeah, yeah okay, she crawls out the TV. I know what's happening here. Saw Juwan, nearly crap myself. Right. Yeah. Mm. And then, you know, some what? of those yeah. ones that... There's still, I think there's still some undiscovered ones in there that I haven't seen. I mean, I've heard decent things about Dark Water, for instance, the original. Dark oh, Water's good. good. But yeah. if you haven't seen Pulse, that's the... Oh, um, we have seen Pulse. We, have seen, we yes, did that. Yes, yeah. definitely. Yeah. And Cure by the same director as Pure, well. Cure, right. yeah. Oh, Cure is so good. 
Oh, I haven't seen Doug that. just made a oh. face. Write this one down if it's, you haven't seen it. Yeah, yeah. Can you see that Can you see the face? It's yeah. a great face. Wait, get a photo. Get a photo. Yeah. Put it up on the Twitter. <laughs> I, I remember seeing um, uh, Ring in... Um, uh, they played at the film festival at Sky City. And it's a smaller-ish theatre. And I it felt so claustrophobic. But I knew nothing about that movie other than it was the sort of thing you should see. And of course, it wasn't a year gone by like when you saw no, it. No, exactly. It really, and in my own house. When yeah. they crawled out of that, good horror movies when need to be a shared experience. crawled out of that TV, I was crawling out of my skin. Yeah. It was. Um, no, it was. It. It's still just thinking about that. It. It, it has a real mm. feeling to it. Just. But I mean, we see countless horror movies over the last fifteen yeah. years. The, yeah. the two of us, the three of us together, and with yeah, our yeah. friends. Mm. Shared horror is, is a completely different experience from sitting there mm. watching it by yourself. That's true. You can turn the lights off. You know, the cat can jump on you in the middle of it and scare the crap out of you. It's not the same as being in a a, a, a cinema with 200 people that scream mm. simultaneously. Yeah. And I even just to something or, or as ridiculous Darren as listening to people scream during arachnophobia, which is a fun movie. <laughs> yes. And one bit hit and oh, the entire Was that recently? Cinema. This was when it first came out. Oh, okay. Literally yeah, that'll when it first be came the, out. the flying through the air. Bit. It was jumping out of the no, yeah. was jumping out of the pipe. That's what I mean. Yeah, yeah the, the spider leaps out of the pipe and an entire row ahead of me full yeah. of fifteen year old girls screamed and it's just <laughs> like that horrible <laughs> welcome <laughs> uh, um, my second biggest simultaneous flinch in a cinema was 28 days later and it's the eye gouging scene and the whole the amazing thing about it was the entire cinema flinched in the same direction <laughs> they all flinched to the right because that's the um the, the way the force was coming from was upper left to lower right of screen and wow. so they like instinctively all pulled away from it and that was until I saw um, the Michael Haneke movie Hidden at the film festival. Uh, la, la, la. Which um, have you not seen that? <laughs> I haven't seen it. Um, there's a there's a moment in it. Yeah, it's... that caused two thousand people to flinch at the same time. Wow! And that was something. But um, that makes me you... think of uh, Bone Tomahawk. Bone to- I was going to say that's oh. exactly the same. Bone Tomahawk. Yes, the, the that's that was a full. I had full a, flinch. a particular experience with that that I knew what was coming up. <laughs> I didn't know when it was going to happen, but and I'm not, I still not great with gore. I love to, I, I love to be scared. I do not like to be repulsed, and certain things when I f- find out about them, I know what I can take and what I can't take. So when a, a person was being, is this like half and half? Yeah, well, that's pretty much when someone was being wishboned, <laughs> essentially, um, and and. Yeah, really torn. Yeah. Um, the Natalie, Natalie Imbruglia style. Uh, <laughs> There's a reference for the 90s fan. <laughs> I, on the other hand, didn't know yeah, that was but, coming. But, but the thing was that I, I averted my gaze, but I could, I, and I could hear the audience reaction. It was like a roller coaster. Yeah. And I could tell exactly what was happening, happening on screen. On screen. Yeah. I couldn't hear it because everybody was reacting louder than what was happening, happening on, on screen. screen. Well, but it was oh, oh, oh. Yeah. And that's that's yeah. probably one of the few times because I knew nothing about that film, yeah. and that scene hit. And that's probably one of the few times where I literally my eyes went to the right. They just right. not I'm not look back up and to the left. No, <laughs> it was. If you haven't seen that scene, it's it's. I mean, the movie itself is. It's a, yeah. it's a Cullen film. Brothers horror movie. Is it is what it feels but... like. Well, I I I kind of knew its reputation, and 
for the first two thirds, I'm like, this is this is way funnier. Why don't people talk about how funny it is? <laughs> it's like, oh yeah, because the ending is so traumatizing that they forget that they know how to laugh, much less that they have done it in the past like, two hours. I'm just chilling out. Because it's a nice character piece. It's yeah, got some yeah, good it comedy. Is, David Arquette was in it. It's great. And oh Sid dear Hayes. God Almighty! Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> wow. But yeah, great film. Oh, what were go. we talking about? Uh, I was talking about ones. Tale of Two Sisters, Tales. and yes. I was ready to give it the pass <laughs> the mic to Steve Ski. Right, well, let's uh, have my final film. We did our Sunday Cinema last week, which is... I mean, we've been doing a, a season of curation where we let... As coming over to my place, one of the people picks the films. So, and there's no... You can't vote them off. It's just whatever they want to play. There's right. no restrictions. But last week, my wife decided she wanted to pick, and, you know, she normally doesn't pick the films, and she normally, you know, quite often... As she says, sits here and watches whatever crap we put on. But she said, can I pick some movies? And it's great because whenever she picks the movies, the jokes here around, and we're watching Pretty in Pink, we're watching John Waters movies for the rest of the night. Oh, and then the most miserable, depressing movies that ever yeah. existed. <laughs> that in, seems to be the, the yeah. half and half. I feel like film noir seems to be like something. She picks some great films. Oh, no, it's, yeah, yeah, everything yeah, she nice. picks is great, but it yeah. can just be a little depressing. Exactly, sometimes. but this time... The theme was <laughs> absolutely frigging bug nuts. So we had a, a triple feature of uh, Redline, Robo Geisha, and an 82-minute-long cut of Jet Li's Black Mask. You can hear the pride oh, in Skeet's voice. I was very proud because, I mean, Black Mary Mask... Well, son. Uh, we didn't particularly dig Black Mask because it had been cut from, I think, 17 minutes out of the original down to this print that we oh, had. And dubbed, mate. And dubbed into Australian. Oh, Jet Li, oh, like, I'm going to kick you yeah. in the fucking face, mate. <laughs> you haven't seen Jet Li until he's Jet Li. Jet Li, yeah, Jet Li on the oh, Barbie. Jet Li in oh. the house. It's, it's oh, just a terrifyingly hilarious dub. And because it's been cut that way, and it was a 90s action movie to begin with, it's like watching... You know, but basically, you feel like you're having a seizure while you're watching. <laughs> Things just happen, yeah. and then it goes, well, there's some plot here. Fuck it, next scene. And it's thrown yeah. out, it's action scene. That's not the one I want to talk about. Robo Geisha... Also not the one I want to talk about. That's utterly mental, but it's crazy at the start, it's crazy at the end, and the middle bit is kind of a little bit... Nothing really happens. I was really surprised by Redline. Oh, and yeah. Redline is a 2009 Japanese animated film uh, directed by Takeshi Koike. Uh, he only directed, I think, this one film. Right. Because apparently... Uh, we did some research. Them. It took seven years to make a nearly bankrupt at a studio. And... It looks on the poster, you look at it, it looks like a Japanese car racing. I've been ignoring that poster for years. Yeah. It's yeah. popped up on in Tubi, it's a free I had no idea Tubi. it was sci-fi. Uh, oh, sorry, not on Tubi, Plex. It was on Plex. Yeah. Um, I know it was Plex because we got 87,000 ads for Plex <laughs> during the movie. Because Plex has got the most annoying advertising thing in the world. You start off with an ad... You get about ten minutes, and then you get three ads, and then you get three more ads, and four more ads, and five, and they get. But longer. are any of them for Tucker Carlson and no, Fox? None of them for Tucker Carlson. They're actually we keep getting an American COVID ad uh, oh, telling us to stay at home. Yelled homes. at you. Yelled at us by a military guy because stand guards. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, that was the best way to get the message across America was to have someone from the U.S. Marines go get indoors, <laughs> and you know, we saw how well that worked, and it was. It's very annoying. Maybe we should target that at Melbourne right now. With Redline, it kind of worked in one way because it gave us a chance to breathe because that movie does what it says in the tin. It is a rush from start to finish because it's not a car racing movie. It's a science fiction car racing movie that looks like basically a Jodorowsky film. 
There is oh my God. so much imagination. It's 2000 AD. Yeah, two, it's very much 2000, 2000 AD, AD, 2000 AD animation. type animation. If you if you it's, think about the 2000 AD comic um, and something like you know Dr. and Quinch or something that if I'm probably referencing something a lot of people may not get, but yep, you didn't get it. That's an English comic, but it's there's just every frame of it. There is so much happening, so much detail. Yeah, alien races. I've never seen anything like it in terms of animation. The have you guys seen Promare, by the way? Promare. No. It came out last year. Anime. It's it. I um because a lot of anime comes out, and I've I've been skipping lately, and it was one I skipped as well. But it's one that sounds like it's similarly like kind of oh. intensely stylized. Is, yeah, but, very stylized. I mean, literally, it's it's basically Death Race two thousand in space because the whole oh premise is okay. that. Yeah, we've we've sold Doug right there. The whole premise is there's races going on throughout the galaxy, building up to the red line, which is basically the the, the grand finale where ever all the winners of the the yellow line and the red line and the green line, for instance, the blue line, race to become, you know, number one racer in the galaxy. There's there's no real stakes apart from that's the MacGuffin. Do they have um, Do they have space hospitals that put out their debt? <laughs> they're dying in order for the uh, racers to run over them like <laughs> a Dutch race. No, that would be great. Oh, okay, right. There probably wasn't time. They just throw a lot more in. But a, the the big premise here is that they are going to hold the last one, the red line, on Robo World, and the head of Robo World don't want it. Don't want it. They've there. It's a no, robot ah, to the cyborg race. planet that's got their own cyborg religion, and this is this is just an insult because it's going across their sacred land. And the people who run Redline go, we're going to do it anyway. So it becomes halfway between Indianapolis 500 and World War Three. And Standing mm. Rock. <laughs> <laughs> it is It is just, you, if you watch it completely without any Plex ads interfering with it, you're going to need to stop about halfway through and just, just take a few moments just to get the heart rate out mm, right, yeah. and then back. And it's dubbing, fantastic dubbing. This was, this was an American dub and really, really well done. I think a big screen would be too much for this film, actually. <laughs> 3D or an, on the IMAX would well, be... Well, I had a similar experience where I um, had the ability to uh, watch a, a, a film on a biggish screen, on a projector screen, and uh, watched the, um, the old 1985 Transformers movie. Wow. And it was so psychedelic. It's uh, it needed several chill out breaks. I've tried watching that several times. I never it's watched the cartoon. This is so, the Orson Welles. The Orson Welles. Yes. Orson Welles, Welles Leonard Nimoy, it, Eric Idle. It breaks me within about ten minutes every time. Oh, it's brilliant. I have no kind of childhood love for it, so I, every time I try and watch it, it's just well, there's too really much watch, happening. I never really watched the TV show. It was just the movie was what. I watched me the shit out of the TV show. I just never got around to the movie. For oh some wow! Reason, so. And you would have hated it too, because you know thank you love all the characters to sell new toys. Right. <laughs> Are you saying this? Cynical? I'm saying that. I am indeed. Very, very cynical. You cynical, money-making, billionaire bastards. <laughs> so Redline's good then? Redline is well worth it. If, yes. if you can find a copy that's, you know, as I say, if it's on doesn't free on Netflix, but if it doesn't have 800,000 ads, watch it. Because if I've, I've got a real love-hate relationship with anime. I, was, I love certain animes, and other ones leave me very cold. And some of the worst ones I've seen just leave me very confused as to what the hell's going on because a well, lot of that times will happen the, with redline too yeah. but but in a more pleasant way concepts translate over you it's it's a fairly simple plot when you start getting overly complicated in some of the japanese ones the concepts i think get lost with mm-hmm. the dub i mean you know we're still watching pokemon my son and i and i'm it's getting stupider it's getting weirder and half the time the they've, they've got a character who says oi bay and he's he's a cat and it's like why is this cat jewish <laughs> 
and I'm Oy. sure it's just there was a his mother. Possibly. This is matrilineal. Matrilineal, it must be. <laughs> I'm suggesting there was just some... Oh, bad. there's always a reason with him. Yeah, I think the reason yeah. was there was a Japanese expression they couldn't translate, so they went, make him from Brooklyn and make him say Oi Bay. A lot. <laughs> Until Steve's head explodes by episode 400. Meow already. <laughs> it's, it's an odd thing, but Red Lion, yeah, well recommended. Oh, well, this will be me then. It will be. Oh, wow. Well, uh, a quick one before the next one. Um... I have, as I mentioned on the previous one, if you've been keeping up to date, um, I've been watching some films with my folks. I wanted to show them something really upbeat and happy, and so I showed them Paddington 2. <laughs> and I was waiting for the was... rug pull there. I was just waiting no, for the I, I, was... <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't sit and watch fucking Salem, so I wouldn't do that for my parents. But um, Paddington 2, which I'd, I was lucky enough to see in a preview screening... Um, when it came out before Christmas, whenever it came out some years ago. And we call that the before times? The before times. <laughs> and it was a full audience of just adults, no kids, and it was a, a spectacular screening. Um, it's just a, a great film. It's really funny and charming, and it doesn't play down, but it doesn't play up either it's doesn't it's not like it's it's not like there are jokes solely for adults every joke just hits everyone at once and right. i think that's why there are some lists where this is this film is considered up there with citizen game <laughs> wow and and is considered one of the best sequels well, of all time th that list is rotten tomatoes which is like if everybody slightly likes a film <laughs> it's a hundred percent if one person hates a film and everybody else thinks it's the best film ever made it's a worse film because one person didn't like it <laughs> so people who do bad math but anyway that's not bad, bad mouth paddington 2 yeah pa paddington 2 is great it's just a, a full-on charm film it's um, Brendan Gleeson plays um, the lovable Knuckles <laughs> it's uh, a great film and, and that was just a, a quick one before the other one the other one is Tourist Trap it's, um, which I already know that Skeets is not a fan of this I film. Would. I watched it solo and it, it just didn't grab me. Well, and I, I couldn't somebody even told tell me you once why. that you need to watch horror with people. Yeah, that's true. I did it watch it solo. I, think I made a mistake on that one because I did watch it and it was just a random choice off. I think just popped up on, mm. on TV or something and I put that on. And it just, uh, maybe it was just me that night, but it just didn't fire for me. But. Well, I, I didn't watch it solo, and every single person in the room, not that there were that many of them, but uh, we all really dug this one. It's um, it's a creepy little bastard of a movie. <laughs> I'll give you that. <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> and, and it starts off with a, um, a guy um, just sort of uh, finding this... Um, this cabin, not exactly in the woods, but um, it's a, a hotel or something, and he gets trapped in this room, and all of a sudden, things start flying around the room, sort of um, telekinetic style or what have you, and uh, and he um, uh, he gets hit by paint cans and things, and and then thing, and then. Um, uh, then mannequins start laughing at him, and sing, and so that's the opening of the movie. 
And and the, of course, he, he may well not survive. No spoilers, but he may well not survive <laughs> those opening five minutes. Right. Um, and then people come looking for him, and it's it's. Why didn't he send the mannequins to tell him where he was? I'm not even going to answer that. I'm not going to dignify that. But it's... This is a dignity-free zone, mate. I know, and I created most of that dignity-free, but it's... Uh, but it's... Um, it's, a, it's a scary... Cre- well, creepy movie, and Chuck Connors is a... Um, uh, plays the... Um, the... The person who owns, I was trying to proprietor. Think. That's the word Both. that was uh, was <laughs> evading me. Um, the proprietor. I was going to say the rifleman for ages. So, uh. <laughs> He's the proprietor of this uh, creepy mannequin uh, uh, wax work thing um, place, and out in the middle of nowhere. So there's no one would ever visit it. So it's probably not a location, location, location mm, no. type. It's it's a bad Business. tourist trap. It's yeah, yeah right. well off the beaten path. But it's uh, and he he's really creepy. Everything about it just has a a, a great vibe. And have it you seen Peter's Alive? Yes. Is it a kind of Neville? I, yeah, yeah. I, I just Neville think of, Brand. Uh, I mean, Eaten Alive has a real sort of grimy grindhouse feel, yeah. which I don't I don't think. Well, one of the things with Tourist Trap is it's got a weird tone. It has comedic music. Mm. Right. And Which threw that, me, because that was it, it kind of rang so oddly with the... With the, the with this, what was going on. With what was going on. But there. sometimes the events matched the music, and other times it did not. I see. But it has a really nice... I think the ending works, but uh, there may be Mr. Disputy over here. Well, yeah. but I the <laughs> yeah. I th- the ending really worked for me, and we and you've got a sort of um, Carrie telekinetic type villain, and you've got just weirdness, and um, one of the death scenes is the most bizarre things I think it's. A, uh, well, a, a disassembly, let's call it, without <laughs> saying what it is, but it's one of the weirdest things I've ever seen. And completely bloodless, but weird, and this guy's still not alive anymore. Um, uh, spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, yeah, again, I'm, I'm trying to talk around anything, because I think it's something that really should be seen. Uh, we watched it off Shudder, so if you oh, have oh, Shudder, yeah. watch it. Because mm. I liked it yeah. a lot, and it's definitely something that I will, no doubt, try and find a Blu-ray copy of. Um, As I say, it wasn't me, but everyone's opinion is kind different. And the weird thing is, I didn't watch it for about three or four times that I went past it because I thought I'd already seen it, right. and I turned out I was conflating it with Motel Hell, uh, well, which life. is a fun, which film. is a fun film. I'm like, I've already seen this film, and then I looked at the cast list and went, No, I haven't watched it. I mean, I should have watched Motel Hell again. So. <laughs> But yeah, I highly recommend that. It's uh, it's um, it's oh. creepy, creepy fun. Well, I'm gonna do a what we'll call doing a Darren and do a two and one to close this out. Um, I think I think you'll find yeah. I think, well, I think I've recommended about eight films. Of my <laughs> yeah, yeah, you go nuts. Well, I was Great. gonna I was gonna mention uh, Laura, which I saw for the first time ever at the Capitol. Testified. Um Otto Preminger as part of the did a 
four film noirs in a row, and unfortunately, I could only make one because the Writers' Festival was going on. But um, and I had a really strange experience with the film, in part because I missed Vincent Price's name in the credits. And I was like, that guy sort of looks like Vincent Price, but not. And it kind of went out of my head. And then, like, oh, it was Vincent Price, but before his voice changed. But also, um, have either of you seen Singapore Sling? No. It is. Well, I can't speak for Skeets. A very screwed up Greek film that I played at Steve Austin's one night that is a riff on Laura, um, and but only has has like forced eating and all sorts of other like kind of basically this cop with amnesia who's in love with a dead woman named Laura shows up at this um, obscure mansion with this incestuous mother daughter and gets trapped in their crazy games. Oh, whoa! And it is. And it's shot black and white, and it's sumptuous, and it's very wrong. It's just so wrong. Like, and it just keeps finding different dimensions to be wrong on. Yeah, oh, you, wow. you, know, you can never quite get comfortable which whatever way it's being. Wrong. And and <laughs> so I I knew that it was a vi- a riff on Laura, um, but I I didn't know like quite how abstracted it was. I knew that it was obviously much more transgressive, but I had didn't know that the story was quite different as well so that was a whole experience but um yeah watching laura on the big screen and especially just seeing otto preminger's facility with like slow camera moves and moving actors around in space so like there's this scene where um the uh investigators alone in laura's apartment and there's a one point where there's a shot with him and he's sort of making eye contact with the painting and he wanders around of the d- deceased lore and there wanders around for a while and some camera moves happen and then it comes back and he's right in front of the painting uh, mm. obscuring her image and stuff like that great obscure stuff and the actual story of it's quite entertaining as well so you don't have to be a nerd about blocking and cinematography <laughs> to enjoy it um but the one i'll mention is one i just watched last night which is not um by any means an unimpeachable masterpiece but was really uh, interesting. It was a film uh, put out on the Indicator Blu-ray label uh, by a director we'll be talking about more soon. Um, and it's called Castle Keep by uh, oh, Sidney Pollack. Um, starring Burt Lancaster, featuring Peter Falk, mm-hmm. uh, featuring um, Bruce Dern. Uh, there's another big name that I'm blanking on at the moment. I, I can't even remember exactly why I bought it i was doing an order and it got some interesting reviews but it was definitely one also that was kind of like "Ooh, this could go either way um because it looks like a two-fisted war film from the cover but the idea is that in world war ii um these gis are cruising around um uh the outskirts of a small french village and they're dilapidated um, vehicle and it breaks down in front of this 10th century castle that's been maintained uh, and so they take up residency there but of course the war is still going on and they have to defend things and the writing about the film I'd seen was very strange and like it took about 10 minutes for me to like be like oh this is a comedy. Like, this is what's going on here. Um, and it's, and that part of it is because Burt Lancaster doesn't play it as one. And it's a very bone dry, uh, kind of pre mastered catch 22, but sort of drawing from that same well, mm-hmm. but a bit more classical in how it's, 
put together and then shot on this set that looks like something out of last year at Marianne Bad or something like this, where it has just this more like kind of, you know, elevated feel to it. So you can mm. see like it's kind of like people didn't know quite what to make of it and it wasn't quite um, it wasn't quite new Hollywood enough to be f- flying the freak flag. You know, it wasn't self-evidently like a Vietnam uh, parable and it wasn't, um, yeah, it, it was just this weird thing. And then in the last third, I think, to make up for the fact that it's so weird, it, it becomes a much more traditional battle film. And there's just lots of lots of gunfire and the absurdity kind of is intrinsic at that point, but it dials back. But for the first two thirds, I was just in love with this weird, weird little Sidney Pollock film that is really peculiar. You know, they go to the bordello and Peter Falk refuses to go to the bordello because he's a baker and he wants to go across the street to the bakery. And they're like, why? He's like, because where there's a baker, there's a baker's wife. And he goes there and he just starts making bread instead, you know, and and that becomes a thing as it goes on. and, And everything just... It just keeps winnowing away into its individual absurdities. Uh, One of the soldiers falls in love with his Volkswagen, like literally. Uh, (laughs) And, uh, you know, it's just these things that quite make it clear it's not meant to be taken on a literal Mm -hmm. level. And it's based on a novel by, I think, a guy named, oh, Donald Westlake, maybe. Um, Oh, really? No, maybe not. Maybe it's Eastlake, because Westlake is the one who did the crime stuff. So, yeah, no, I'm thinking of somebody else. But probably the least of the films I've mentioned in terms of, like, consistency, but, like, one that's going to stick with me for a long time. Yeah. Sounds like one I might need to borrow. (laughs) Just putting that out. Just Just, just, just a guess. Well, I hear you have Silent Rage coming, so... (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's true. Yes, we we can... And I I, I suppose I don't have time to mention I saw Shadow of a Doubt and Strangers on a Train. No, you don't. No, you (laughs) don't. So I I won't. No, definitely not. Cool. Right. Uh, right. So where were we? Where were we? We were back at that uh, title I nearly passed out the on. The reason that yes, you might have tuned in for, or probably or possibly didn't. not. Maybe just right, to hear yes. us waffle about the, 700 the, films. The, usually we do a segue for these, so we apologize. We're not on top of our segues tonight. No. Um, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so we're going to talk about three films that uh, Jimmy Carter watched while president on consecutive days that feature uh, people he had or would have real-life connections with. And that caveat is some of these people he knew before he watched the film and some of these people he didn't meet until after he watched the film. Uh, so the first film is Citizen's Band, which he watched on Valentine's Day, 1978, February 14th. Valentine's Day. Which adds a whole other dimension to that <laughs> Wow. Film. Shall I explain the connection first? Or do yes, you want please, to? Okay. please. So the director of Citizen's Band is uh, Jonathan Demme, who was later approached by uh, Carter's people uh, to, to say, hey... Um, we'd like you to direct a documentary about Jimmy Carter. And so enough, sure enough, in 2007, Jimmy Carter, Man from Plains came out, which I've seen and can discuss more. But uh, that's that connection. Right. So that I, is the, I thought that was going to be my best bit of research I did on this one, <laughs> and Doug found it already. But never mind. <laughs> no, that, I've uh, got to do this one uh, talking about Citizens Band. Uh, it's a, directed by Jonathan Demme, uh, and we are saying his name correctly. I very rarely hear it actually said but we did check up on this yeah. was born in 1944 and oddly enough i share his birthday so hooray huzzah yes uh he was born in baldwin new york and new york born at new york bred even passed away in new york city so stayed oh. true to his roots uh he attended university and then 
as a lot of people did at the time, ended up working for Roger Corman. Because Roger Corman, if you could produce, write, direct, and deliver a film on budget, on time, and with as good a poster as possible, you got a job. And Roger Corman's given so many people mm-hmm. in the film industry starting for those B-films. Amazing careers. So he, he started off co-writing and producing a biker flick called Angels Hard As They Come, uh, which was a biker flick, and I love this, <clears throat> loosely based on Rashomon. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I'm, I'm sure we will see that for ourselves. <laughs> I, I especially like that because our, our running gag on Cinema Z is, I believe this film was loosely based on Hamlet, so I'm going to have to change that next week. <laughs> uh, we say that for everything from Titanic 2 to, you know, uh, The Chilling. Uh, he also did, uh, he, he produced The Hot Box, which is a movie, a woman in prison flick from oh, the Philippines. Oh, also loosely based on Hamlet. I'm sure that's loosely based on something in Hamlet. Uh, it's, it's such a sleazy point, I don't think even I've managed to get all the way through of that. Uh, and then got started directing. And here's the trilogy of films he directed for New World Films. Cage Teat was his first directorial effort. Mm-hmm. Crazy Mama, which I've discovered is on Prime Video and is now on my watch Ooh. list. And Fighting Mad. So... Three amazing titles. I've seen Cage Sheet, and it's 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 definitely it is it's a woman in prison's flick. So if you've seen one, you've seen them all. But it's any one way to start back on the in the seventies. Crazy Mama looks quite interesting because it's Cloris Leachman, yeah. yes, in a movie called Crazy Mama. So I am down for that, and I know Darren's down for that oh, shit as well. So down for that. And then his fourth movie was Citizens Band. So this was his well, first... Tell us about that one, Scott. Oh, we'll tell you about that. So this was one he got to write and Go got to direct tell himself. all your details. Uh, i got to say, it wasn't the best of starts for him getting out on his own because it had a budget of $5 million and it made $81,000. <laughs> and with Corman, if you did that, wow. you wouldn't have worked for Corman because Corman, as he said, made 200 movies and never lost a dime. Um, this one, unfortunately, just didn't fire, and they, they changed the title on it after the first release. They changed it to uh, Handle With Care, and apparently it's because they Jonathan decided that maybe people weren't going to see it because they thought it was about a musical band. Right. So they changed the title, they re-released it in, in France, it made no money whatsoever. Uh, it went on to get somewhat of a cult following. I found it on a lot of the top 1,000 movies of all time list or, you know, the, the 100 most influential independent flicks. Mm. And it's very much steeped in its culture of the time. 1977, we're talking, we are deep in the CB era, Citizen Band Radio. So the year before a little song came out, a little novelty song called Convoy, uh, yes. And I discovered doing my research at the same year there was a sequel to that song by the same oh. uh, same singer uh, called uh, Around the World with Rubber Duck, which uh, <laughs> we won't put in here, but you can go look that up. I'm sure it'll be hilarious. Uh, CB radios themselves, I mean, we have become so huge. When I looked into it, it was still really started just post-war. They started licensing Citizens Band Radio, but in the 60s... It was really, up to about the 60s, it was just companies that were using it because they were big, they were expensive, they weren't intuitive things. And then as they started getting smaller, cheaper especially, they became pretty much the social media of the 1970s. So you would have people that we saw, for instance, in this movie, we saw everything that you would see on Twitter and Facebook these days. Right. The old lady talking about her day, Uh, the, the, the white supremacist, the preacher... 
all jumping on it. There was it's it's flirting public, flirting public. yeah. Mm-hmm. A lot of stuff happening on that that is just what today would be all over you. You could argue that it's a demonstration account. of cancel culture before its time, even. It could be. Oh, just before I go into, I wanted. I looked at what he did after this. He went from handle with Nothing care making eighty-one thousand dollars. <laughs> And then made Melvin and Howard, which won oh, the wow. Best Supporting Actress for Mary Steenburgen, and won a bunch of writing awards. Film I've never seen, but I've really heard good. great yeah. things about. So straight from that, from what could have destroyed anyone else's career, into winning an Oscar-winning film, and then uh, he followed it by another pan film, uh, Swing Shift, which apparently had artistic differences with Goldie Hawn. They both had different ideas of where that movie was going to go. So he backed away a little bit from Hollywood and made a little film called Stop Making Sense. And that's pretty much where his, his film career me. just tanked. just it's it's that's peak Jonathan oh Demi for you. Yes. One of the greatest concert films of Absolutely. all time. Absolutely. But uh, as I say, I know I was going to mention on that he uh, has a little follow-up. Oh, yeah, Silence of the Lambs. Silence of the Lambs. It was that was pretty decent, I believe. It was good. Mm. It's a fantastic film. I rewatched that last mm. year. Still holds up really well. And as you say, a direct a documentary on on Jimmy Carter. So, Amongst, uh, Rachel around. getting married, the remake of the Manchurian Candidate. You know, he's got. He did an awful yeah. lot. He only he only died a couple of years ago, yeah. I believe. So, yeah. Uh, but the Citizens Band itself is an interesting one because you've given me the movie, and if anyone's listened to this podcast before knows, me and plots don't get along sometimes. You gave me a movie. There with, has no plot. Mm, well, it's got a lot of plots. Okay, yeah. It's got it's, s- about six it's different plots. It's a bit plots. plotty, but it's. Yeah. it's it's if you imagine Slacker but being done over the over CB radios, there is a lot happening, and it basically the, the premise is that well the first thing we see is a a trucker played by the wonderful Charles Napier, yeah yeah, getting horribly injured uh, on a way into a small town and getting himself stuck in the small town, and from there on we start meeting all the people in the small town and we get all these little vignette stories of of different people around, and. Well, I just Napier. thought of this true stories. True stories. That's yeah. that was going through my head when I was watching mm. it. That it, it is very much that true stories. Yeah. Uh, if David Byrne had walked through a scene singing, I would have been just like, okay, that's fine. I, I can I can completely buy that. Mm. That's where this, the music budget went. <laughs> <laughs> that was yeah. That's we'll talk about that music or lack thereof <laughs> of it later on. But for me, Charles Napier steals this movie right off the bat yeah. because his story is frigging hilarious. It's, yeah. it's, it's a somewhat disjointed movie for me. I didn't enjoy all of it. I enjoyed a lot of bits of it. I think it's a disjointed movie for anyone. Yeah, for anyone. Like by it design, it's, it's fragmented. But Charles Napier should have had a spin-off movie by himself because yes. he gets stuck <laughs> yes, in a town should. and his wife and his other wife yes. turn up on the same bus to make sure that he's okay. And hilarity ensues because Charles Napier is the lo- most likable bigamous bastard you've ever met yes. I mean yeah, he, he would be so cancelled <laughs> <laughs> but you know you can tell he's, he's, he's not just doing it to be because they're bigamous he's a trucker he's on the road all the time and he does seem to care yeah, for he doesn't just the multiple women that he's yeah, cheating well, on it's them it's not with. just his wife and his other wife he, it's, it's his girlfriend his, who he's um has in the room while he's talking with them. Oh, yes, the Dallas uh, Angel. He's he's so callously... Sorry, no, sorry. Hot uh, coffee, I've forgotten. Yes, yes, hot coffee. Hot coffee. Because everyone in this film, in the credits, gets listed by their CB yes. handle. Yes. So it is it's fantastic. So, yeah, Alex, uh, Alex Elias' hot coffee is just wonderful. So she's 
basically who Charles Napier was turning up to see, uh, inverted commas, and get stuck with. So we get amazing scenes of the careful negotiations between a man and his wife and his wife and his rather indelicate girlfriend, shall we say. And yes. she is just a real highlight of this film. Cheerfully oblivious. And Absolutely yes, oblivious very, to very, it. Yes. And it's... I'm very concerned with making sure people get coffee. Oh, yeah. Damn, <laughs> damn good cup of coffee, from what I understand. And <laughs> But at the same time, you've also got multiple stories going on. You've got one of our... Well, two stories almost at one with our, our main leads, um, uh, Paul Amet yeah. and Bruce McGill. Mm. Bruce McGill's first film, I believe. Um, Paul, Paul Amet's first film. Uh, well, definitely Bruce McGill's. Bruce McGill's first film. And the they play two brothers who... There's a, a love triangle going on there as well. And I'm, that was... A, 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 at this point, there was one beautiful little shot there which really showed where Jonathan Demi was going to go, where one of the brothers walks in and sees his yes. his ex-girlfriend yeah. kissing his other brother, and they're framed in a mirror while yes. the blonde brother is down the hallway. And it's just as... You know, Doug just was... at The editor here just went, oh, that's amazing. Yeah. So <laughs> it really... It feels like such a fledging effort that he was just yeah. getting his feet. He was getting his own style. Mm. And you could see all these bits of it. But in the, potential that was, was there. It was rife with it. Mm. But so many other stories there. I mean, you had the, the brothers... Father, played by Roberts Blossom, who's uh, one of our favourite character actors, who has never been young. Uh, apparently, only, <laughs> I think he only, looking at his, his filmography, only really started appearing on screen in his in his late 40s, early 50s. Yeah, so right. he's never looked young on screen, even though he's acted well before that. Star of one of the most disturbing kind of uh, Ed Gein-inspired uh, mm. ones, Deranged, from 1974, which is... A good movie if you're in the mood for not being having a very happy night the next night. Right. It's the strangest thing is how likable his character is. Well, doing horrible, horrible doing, things. Yes, deranged things, but mm. it's again, it's that it's that sympathy for the devil thing that it's is just always so intoxicating. It's the thing that sort of pulls you into horror sometimes. Is and, and his character here, I mean, well, Silence of the Lambs. Yeah, yeah, yeah indeed. <laughs> yeah, but his character here, he plays he plays the alcoholic father of the, the two boys. And, I mean, that could just be almost a throwaway part, but he becomes a, a big part of this movie as well. And uh, he is used because, of course, when you have all these multiple stories, you have to tie them together at the end. And it's yeah. for me, it's a, it's a slightly clumsy way where they have to bring everybody there to search for the old man. And it just kind of almost comes out of nowhere and you just kind of yeah. go, oh, okay, they found a way to get everybody there. But it feels like, he almost wrote himself into a corner and then had to go, how do we get everyone in this final yeah. scene? Okay, we'll do this. And so the stakes don't feel particularly high at the end of it. But Rupert's Blossom, I think, is, is, is an excellent character in it. But as I say, it's it's a very disjointed film. There's, there's yeah. certain times you disappear off to follow one character's story and you're like, well, can we come back to the other one? You know, And there's, mm. there's definitely some laugh-out-loud moments, but then there's also some happy drama in there as well. So it... It veers wildly for me from from one extreme to the other as to what sort of tone it's setting. It feels like mm. two films that have basically run into each other and bits of it have just ended up or scattered. Four through. even, yeah, yeah very. Because it's like you have the family relationship, but then you also have like the um, Paul Amat as avenging angel against people <laughs> yeah. who are improperly using the CB uh, moderator. C- yeah, <laughs> <laughs> which I mean, if let's face it, if if there was. If you could walk to someone's house and smash their Twitter. computer to take them off Twitter, people would do it. 
And this well, is, you would have done that too. I would have done that um, to the president, <clears throat> to the to the former, you know who. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I definitely, but unfortunately, Twitter did that for me eventually. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that this those intersecting storylines they they do work in some ways, and other times it kind of it just you you feel like you haven't quite got enough yeah. of one. Well, I think I think that's just endemic to that style, like mm. Crash and Shortcuts and all those films. It's just really hard because every viewer is going to have a different kind of. When you have when you have th- those different kind of stories, people mm. are going to be, you know, not have equal interest across all of them almost all the time, and mm. so it's very difficult to pass back and forth and have it feel organic. And then when there are stories that don't really have a natural connection as well, mm. yeah. and, um, and then the unifying story at the end is so kind of sitcom cliched yeah yeah and and didn't seem let's get the town sl- together and put on a benefit concert but it didn't even seem slightly earned because it just sort of came out of yeah. nowhere yeah. there was no leading up to no. that event and they threw in characters that you know you know that white supremacist guy that thinks everybody's a communist was not going to turn up for that he had better things to do he had yeah. to be racist on the internet and, and yeah, he did he, he, he turned yeah. up for it, and I mean, we, I haven't even mentioned Ed Beckley Jr. turns up, and he's a voice for half of them. Yes, he's the, the the online, you know, the the radio preacher, and you only get to see. Who him doesn't in the respect FCC laws? No, no way, no, no. God doesn't care about the FCC. It's God, that's the one. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a great. He's got a great part yeah. to it, but he just, you know, suddenly when he does turn up, finally, you're just like, oh, well, there he is. But well, once he turns up, he's in it less. Yeah, <laughs> he's much better as as just a voice on the radio. So. It's, it's a, it's a, it's what a did you think of it? I, I liked it. It had a charm to it that won me over eventually, but it was... It's so disparate to start with. There's so many different stories going on. Um, but it, I, I finally kind of, about halfway through, I kind of found, found myself swept up in it. And I quite enjoyed it by the end. It's not a film that I'm ever going to say is the best film ever. It's not on my a thousand films yeah. to see before you dot dot dot. But um, yeah, I I enjoyed it, and you could definitely see the potential that Jonathan Demi had. It's you can you can see there are those seeds of the career that grew from yeah. that. It's. I mean, one of the things that I really connect to the rest of his career through that as a through line. I mean, there is, as you know, Steve mentioned, there's some beautiful shots and things like that. Mm. But he also just, I, I think, gets really interested in human beings. And mm-hmm. that's... Um, oh, that's very You know, and, and whether it's in, you know, films like, you know, Something Wild or Philadelphia or... I mean, Silence of the Lambs, the reason that film works so well for audiences who normally wouldn't give a bar to horror is because it just digs so deep into the reality of those characters mm. and portrays them so compellingly. And, you know, and there's some people who it's like elevated horror. It's too good for horror. And, and, and Silence of the Lambs isn't that. It's not above cheap bait and switch suspense tricks. Like when they go to the house and, you know, mm. turns out yeah. to be the wrong one. And it's not above like some nasty gore scenes. Or putting uh, the lotion in the bash. Yeah, or... or oh, I don't know why he was Jimmy Stewart. Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> oh, that would have been a twist. Oh, 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 put the lotion in the bash. Wipes it on his skin. <laughs> if you asked a dozen people to say what genre of Silence of the Lambs was, the chance of them, many of them saying horror 
would be fairly minor. That'd be a thriller or suspense. Yeah, yeah. But it's a it's an out and out horror. Oh gosh, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's just it may not have a guy in a hockey mask. It may not have a monster. It's got humans. But... My wife doesn't like horror films. She loves Silence of the Lambs. Well, there you go. You know, and it's... and let's face it, Roger Corman in a pretty prominent role. Yes, true. Yes, true. Yes. There you go. Yeah. So there's a little thank you. Not in Citizen's Band, although no. I, it's no. interesting that Charles Napier appears in a bunch of dummy films. But yeah, I mean, I, I think I think we're all kind of in the same boat here of like. You know, it's it'd be hard pressed to make a demi top ten, much less mm. anything it's, else. It's, it's just, uh, it'd it's be interesting just... chats in the uh, Carter household that night. <laughs> as you, uh, so, what do you think about that? Uh, that Charles Napier guy's up to? <laughs> I got some ideas on Rogue <laughs> Well, that that wasn't a bad Jimmy Carter there. Uh, yeah. you, you could see his teeth suddenly <laughs> jut out. That's all right. Um, but I I did like. I mean, I did actually really like the abstraction of the first ten minutes before. It Kind of settled into that where it just seemed like it was going to use the radio to keep hopping mm. everywhere mm. and then it settles in more into the an actual more conventional the polar mat mode story, but yeah. um but yeah i mean it, it's i don't think any many people will come to it and be like oh the, here's his true gem but um mm. you know it's, on, on it's, 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 it's above for completists only yeah it's not fear and desire it's got a charm to it that i think will um is worth a look. Yeah, I, I, the thing I compared it to in my head as we were watching it also was it was breaking away uh, with the, the storyline with the two brothers. But I pre- breaking much away, breaking is away, breaking away is, is a, which is you've never seen breaking oh, away. I have seen breaking away more that times must change. than okay. than you've seen. Raging Paul Ball, Dooley. <laughs> uh, the words refund. <laughs> and I won't say any more than Well, I can just say refund, refund again, yeah, but, but uh, I won't say any more yes. than that because I'm getting Doug a quizzical confused, look from. But from yes, Doug, Doug needs to see that movie. So it's, uh, that is a fantastic, you know, coming of age movie around that same same era. I think it's about 76 or something like it's, that. Uh, yeah, something so, like that. And it's Dennis Quaid, uh, Jackie or Haley? Yeah. Um, but, and, yeah. Uh, and the guy from. Uh, Christopher's what's his face from Fade to Black. Um, okay, but it's not a film that Jimmy Carter saw in the White House on February fifteenth, nineteen seventy-eight. One thing before Thank we do. Thank you go, for keeping us on One thing track. before we do move on, I do want to say from my research, which obviously wasn't a huge amount of research, I kind of got caught up in one thing. If you get a chance to look at scans of nineteen seventies CB radio and Van Culture magazines, <laughs> you will lose hours because it is an amazing treasure trove uh they're unfortunately uh, uh, something awful.com i've been on their message boards for a long time right and they have a several thousand page running thread of old magazines which start off just with vans but if you look into that you will just gaze in wonderment at what people used to do to the inside of a Ford Econo van and <laughs> what they would do to make sure that their CB radio went as far as possible. Breaker, breaker, rubber ducky. Hop into the back there. It's full of shag pile carpeting and wood paneling. It's unbelievable stuff. Oh, so, yes. It is well worth a look. But let's move on. I was I was going to say one thing that's a big deal in the movie is the 55-mile-an-hour speed limit as well, yes. which mm. was brought, on, brought in under Gerald Ford but was maintained under Jimmy Carter in part because there was the oil crisis going on during... His presidency in 55 mile an hour was considered a more uh, fuel mm-hmm. efficient, well, is a more fuel efficient speed speed limit. And that was one of the um, things that I think it wasn't the main one, but it was definitely a thing that cost definitely. Carter a lot of popularity. And it, that, that and definitely helped the CB culture rise from what I read as well, because yeah. people would use the CB radius to go, cops over here, take a left. <laughs> right, yeah. Get off the mile. Oh, right, yeah. You can go yeah. the speed that you want go to. Go down that yeah. road. Go fast. Go home. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, 
February 15th, 1978, a day that will live in no particular infamy, <laughs> um, but was the day that the Carters watched Jeremiah Johnson, uh, 1972 film uh, starring Robert Redford, who, of course, was Jimmy Carter's debate coach. Uh, <laughs> yes, because in fact, um, Redford had, a, 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 apart from being an esteemed actor generally, had played a senator or a Senate candidate in the movie The Candidate in 1972. Ah, yes. And um, I found a CBS News article that wasn't bylined that talks a bit about this. But um, in 2004, for some reason, Carter finally revealed this little known fact. Um, and uh, he said, I was probably president because of Bob Redford, said Mr. Carter, who confided that before the debate leading to his 1976 election, he didn't know what in the world I was going to do. Redford told him what not to do. He arrived at Mr. Carter's house with a project with a projector and films of the historic debate that made Richard Nixon look dour and John F. Kennedy charismatic. Redford played the tape over and over and gave me advice. The former president said Saturday at Redford Sundance Resort as part of an author's series. So, wow. um, so yeah, so obviously he was at Sundance for that. So I've caught up with Redford since then as well. But I thought that was a pretty incredible. Uh, and so it's interesting that only one of these movies is contemporaneous that we're talking about. Uh, he w- Obviously, Citizens Band was 77. He watched it February 14th. But given how bad its distribution was, that might have been pretty much then. Jeremiah Johnson, uh, 1972. And uh, obviously... Both Sidney Pollock and Robert Redford have long careers, and obviously, uh, life is short. And uh, so, I was going to talk most about them as a collaborative force because they uh, met when they were both actors in 1962 in a low-budget black-and-white indie film called *War Hunt*, uh, directed by a guy named Dennis Sanders. Um, that film was also the debut of Tom Skerritt, and also features um, John Saxon and Gavin McLeod. And uh, in an uncredited role as a truck driver, Francis Ford Coppola. Um, so Pollock got to direct his first film in 65, The Slender Thread. Uh, and then his second film was This Property is Condemned, which is the first film that he did with um, Robert Redford and Natalie Wood. Screenplay, incidentally, co-written by Francis Ford Coppola. I do not know what's going on there. <laughs> My research doesn't go that deep. Um, and then... Pollock went on to some other films, including the aforementioned uh, Castle Keep. And then, uh, in the meantime, a guy uh, who is a bit of a rebel in Hollywood, or near Hollywood, or kind of far away from Hollywood, but writing things, actually, named uh, John Milius, was uh, working on a screenplay based on two books that were both about a legendary guy named Liver Eating Johnston. And uh, a book called Crow Killer and another one called Mountain Man. And uh, this uh, got developed and then they 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 were kind of scared of Milius, which if anybody knows about <laughs> Milius, it kind of makes sense. And they brought this guy Edward Anhalt on to be more of a um, professional voice, but nobody could quite nail the Mountain Man voice the same way that Milius could. Mm-hmm. And Milius had done a lot of, like, he'd lived, you know, rough in the wilderness and done a lot of the things that you see. And a lot of the time in, looked like he lived kind of. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, made, it made Jeremiah Johnson look like a bit of a, uh, uh, a skinhead by comparison, probably. Um, Jeremiah Johnson was originally intended as a star vehicle for Lee Marvin. That didn't work out. Oh. Um, and then uh, Clint Eastwood was Sam Peckinpah to direct. Uh, and... Eventually, they saw 
they disagreed so much that they both walked off the project. (laughs) At which point, Warner Brothers brought in Robert Redford, and Redford uh, brought back his friend Sidney Pollack. Uh, now, the studio that wanted it shot in the back lots to control costs just outside of California. And Redford and Pollock were both like, nah, that you can't make this movie in the back lots of California. We have to shoot on location in Utah in the snow and the woods. Mm-hmm. They're like, no, They're like, yes, and we'll cover the overages. And so they went there and showed up in Utah and had record blizzards and one of the worst shoots ever most of the takes you see are first takes wow um because they didn't have time to do second takes uh pollock had to mortgage his house in order to keep the shoot going uh they had a seven and a half month edit from the editor of west side story who is somehow also responsible for those coyote fight scenes but we can talk about that more (laughs) in a moment um Mm. it was the and yeah it was the first western accepted at Cannes. So it played in Cannes in May of 1972 and then debuted in 1972 December in cinemas in the States. And it was a reasonable financial success. Um, returned very well on its budget over time at, at $8 million in its first release, $10 million in second release. I'm like, I, I forget what the budget was, but much lower than that. And um, began uh, what would be several more collaborations between Pollock and Redford. So there's The Way We Were... Three Days of the Condor, The Electric Horseman, Out of Africa, and then 1990's Havana was their final one, by which time Pollock's um, directing career didn't necessarily have the highlights that it once did. He'd won the uh, Oscar for Tootsie by then, of course, and mm. um, but by then it was things like Sabrina and The Interpreter and Random Hearts. Um, but the flip side of that is he was kicking ass as an actor by then because he was in mm. Husbands and Wives Eyes Wide Shut and uh, Michael Clayton which he uh, produced as well and he also got involved in producing a bunch of other films or executive producing including uh, uh, Anthony Minghella's films like Talented Mr. Ripley and Cold Mountain as well as of all things uh, Sliding Doors and at Eyes Wide Shut he's, he he's, is the highlight Oh yeah, the acting highlight of that movie absolutely yeah, well, I'd say that about husbands and wives as well, actually. But he was um, meant to be Har- Harvey Keitel was meant to play that role, I believe, in Eyes Wide Shut. Oh yeah, yeah, and then like, I think Keitel had to go to another film before uh, Kubrick had actually got around to shooting any of those scenes <laughs> because because <laughs> Kubrick. I don't know if you know this about Kubrick. <laughs> Sorry, still on, still on the first shot. Uh, take four hundred and two. Yeah. So, so one thing that Sydney was like. So we did when we did Jeremiah Johnson. We did out most of the shots in one take. He's like, just kind of. What? <laughs> Who makes movies like that? <laughs> you you, you mean the, by one you mean one hundred, right? <laughs> what was the the Jack Nicholson crossed the road eighty seven times or something like that in The Shining? Yeah, I'm sure he it's, did. Yeah. I mean that doesn't even sound like. I mean it, it sounds certainly like a normal like kind of Kubrick. No, well story. I think the 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 worst one was the um, was Scatman Crothers getting his the axe in the back where oh, right. um, he. <laughs> yeah. uh, eventually broke down because yeah. he was getting hit so many times yeah. and, and right. so. Stanley Kubrick visionary director bit of a bastard really yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's my uh, book report on Jeremiah Johnson directed by Sidney Powell starring Robert Redford right um, so be yeah I'd, I'd give him a passing grade definitely yeah. I think it's well researched but, but. Uh, what, what, what grade would you give Jeremiah Johnson though uh, 
I'd give it yeah. a. It was okay. Uh, I don't know what yeah. grade that is. I watched yeah. it just this afternoon. Oh uh, well, wow. okay. Did. Yeah, so, so it's I'm fresh. It's very fresh for me. I watched it this afternoon, and it was a kind of a nostalgic experience because I know when Have I was. Seen it? I've never seen it, but because in the when I grew up in the seventies, my mother would take us to the local. Uh, movie theater quite often, mm-hmm. and uh, we'd always see the kind of Disney things like the Swiss Family Robinson, ah, gotcha, the gotcha, Wilderness yes, Family, yes, 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 and it, yeah. it had that same feel. Although, yes, it did. without the horrific violence that suddenly creeps in on the third act. Yes. I mean, the Swiss Family Robinson did not end up with you know coyotes and massacres, and but it, so it this is closer to roar. Yeah, <laughs> very much, very much. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I, I was. I would say that it's a movie I wouldn't bother seeing again, but for what it was, <laughs> for the 70s, it's um, it's definitely... Well, you've seen it more than once, have you? I, yeah. Ah, yeah. okay. Yeah. It's, I was kind of against distilling these three for that very reason. <laughs> I hadn't picked up it, because you own it on Blu-ray, right? I, no, I, I don't own it on Blu-ray. I'd, oh, okay. I'd seen it before, and it had left me kind of cold. Oh, and okay. I thought, well... Approach everything with an open mind if you can, and so I watched it again. It looks spectacular because oh, I, yeah. I um, did that. manage to find a Blu-ray um, a copy of it, and so it absolutely. You mean you legally rented a high definition? That's exactly what I said. It <laughs> uh, play play back the tape, um, and it looks absolutely spectacular. It's yeah. uh, the scenery, everything. It's he shot the hell out of it. Mm. Yeah. It's it's a beautiful looking movie, and yet just once again it left me cold. It's yeah. It, it yeah. There's just something that intangible something that is lacking from it, and I maybe maybe Doug has the words for it, but I just can't think. Well, why this is it... my problem with because I I saw there's a recent film that I think is already gone from cinemas starring Robin Wright called Land that came out this year about this woman who goes her way of coping with trauma in her life is to go live alone on some obscure plot of land. And, um, and for a movie that's about somebody living alone, they just never let her be alone for the whole damn thing. <laughs> and this is, and um, there's a film that we wa- I've watched over here called Alone in the Wilderness and it's voiceover driven, but it's like, it's so satisfying. It was just watching the guy like build his oh. hut and kind of like, you know, it's just like, it does what it says on the tin yeah. and Jeremiah Johnson goes out to be a mountain man and goes to be alone and yet we keep finding contrivances <laughs> to throw people into his life and you you almost feel like 87% of his life is dealing with other people. He's, he's a and, one man Grand Central Station yes. because he's in tens of thousands of miles of wilderness Good and every point. time he turns around, hey there's that guy again and by the end of the yeah. movie when suddenly characters started reappearing I'm thinking how did he find him? Has he got some sort of weird 1980s, 60s Trip advisor. G- <laughs> GPS tracker on him? Yeah. Because pe- the- people just keep showing up. I mean, they threw a new character, and eight minutes before the end, I checked, and I went, this guy's not been in the movie before. The ordinary guy at the beginning, he's old man Walton, isn't he? He's Is he? Um, I'll check, I but he is. He's, uh, he's some, uh, yeah, someone I I knew really well in terms of, as a kid, yeah. Walton Will, was Will on. Greer is his name. He was actually, Will Gear. sorry. He's one of my favourite characters in the movie, yeah, as Bear Claw. Definitely. As, you know, and yes, he was in fact Grandpa, Grandpa Walton. Yeah. Look okay. at that. Never doubt the, uh, the Darren. <laughs> I would have been interested to see if Milius had directed it, um, just... Uh, because there's just a tone. Something. Yeah, the tone of it, I feel like 
they've tried to they you know there's these more broadly comic moments that feel like out of piece that might have been like um Milius in fact some of my research notes were from a site called Cinephilia and Beyond mm-hmm. which has Milius's draft on it which I haven't read but um it'd be interesting to see um what tonally how it differs from what the final product was um i watched it i'd also bought it on dvd from the video shop as well which is one of the reasons it was on my mind and um it was like an old snapper dvd that they'd ha- had the cardboard case that they cut uh, out and then pasted uh, into a plastic case in order to rent so it was not a high definition beautiful no. viewing experience but that it still would have been fine i think i think one of the things that uh, i watched a little bit of this uh, one-hour special that had been made about Pollock and Redford for TV in the 90s that is sitting around YouTube, but the only version was taped off uh, Israeli TV, so it has <laughs> Hebrew subtitles. Um, but um, it talks about how Redford likes to uh, underplay, and I think that's... It can be a good thing, and sometimes it can just feel a bit Actually, like yeah. he's not quite there. Yeah. And, and, and I, I think, think that, like in, that in that a film being with a lot of wide shots... I think that, um, I mean, there's something that Jason Bateman talks about in The Making of Ozark. Uh, I, I, I read an interview with him talking about directing, which is that, like, the big mistake a lot of people make is, like, if, they, if they're looking through the viewfinder and the actor doesn't seem to be doing something, you know, if it's a good actor, they probably are. You just need to move the lens closer. And so it's like, and this is something that, you know, will often happen is they'll get actors to overact Mm. Um, in or in order to make a shot work, um, but then like actually what they're doing is really subtle, and you just need to be closer to them. This felt like the opposite, where it's mm. like what he's doing is subtle, but he's across a fucking valley, and he's got a beard and hair over his face, yeah. and so it just. But there were some doesn't... of the shots for, were phenomenal. There were some shots where I mean, there's a shot yeah. where he's standing by a newly dug grave with a woman yeah, yeah. kneeling down in front of the grave, and the camera doesn't save them pulls back and it frames it yeah. like a painting and yes. it, it felt like yeah. you know the several shots in there were they looked at that and went okay stand up in the promontory boom we've got art right yeah. there but and maybe some... those two separate techniques that the the robert redford underplaying and the framing and yeah. the pulling the camera back are not compatible because i think you hit the nail on the head there's robert redford is not present and and or uh, one of the things about robert redford is he is a charismatic reservoir he just mm. has this charisma that that just rolls off him and in jeremiah johnson it wasn't there but conversely though his character i quite liked the fact that he was when he would talk to somebody he would have this strange cadence of someone who hadn't talked to anyone for months okay and if you've been out in the wilderness you know, trapping badges with nothing to do and no talk to you by yourself. When someone turns up, you're not going to go, hey, roll into that conversation. Sure. And his natural charisma probably well, did feel a bit muted. He there says was a nice moment with that where he says, I haven't talked English for a while. For a while. Yeah. Yeah. But um, but also there's a lot of it. So it's like, well, you haven't talked to somebody for 45 seconds of screen time. <laughs> 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 it didn't feel like that. He said it's one of his favorite performances, apparently, in an interview, because his character suffers so much but always continually bounces back. Although but that's more, that's not so much. I've, as, yeah. I've dug out my Leonard Moulton's guide ah, because blessed be it does have a a very positive review for it, but it points out something at the end which I 
Definitely agree on. Gave it a three out of four stars. In fact, all the movies that we watched today, Leonard Maltin gave three out of four stars. Uh, Good old news. Here's something for your uh, movie marathon. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Atmospheric chronicle life of mountain man surviving in wintry wilderness, Indians, rival trappers. Unfortunately, film doesn't know when to quit, rambling on to inclus- inconclusive ending. Gear's delightful as feisty mountain hermit. And also th- points yeah. out the fact that this is one of the few films I think we're going to watch this year with an overture and a what's the an intermission. Intermission. an intermission despite being up. under two hours yeah at an yeah. hour and a quarter an intermission screen comes up and then we get the in oh I forget what it's they call it it's a, it's the, the yeah. entract yeah the entract that's the one which came out yes. of out of opera and musical theater so a nice little mm. two minutes of music to get us back in there after you've returned from the lobby but. Uh, you very rarely see that these days, and especially not in movies under three hours. You'd really yeah, I remember that. the right stuff had an intermission. Yeah. But, oh, but um, it needed it. it yeah, yeah. It's a, Tarantino it's a long ass but great film. Sure, yeah. Tarantino's still doing over two hours for yeah. Hateful Eight was the last one I remember. Yeah. But definitely at the end of the film, there was at <laughs> least three moments where we could have had a fade out, we could have had a freeze frame, and then it continued on. At one point I went, hey, we've wrapped the story up pretty nicely there. I looked on screen and there was about 20 minutes sort of I ago. did yeah. the same bloody thing <laughs> it's and it's just well I'm just going to go wow. quickly put the kettle on and come back and find out how this ends oh here we go this is the ending no we've met another character and there's that character back again and there's another character back and we're finally freeze frame so it does it wears its welcome out a little bit too much yeah. yeah, but it's it's a it's a Sunday afternoon movie. It's... Can we talk about the coyote attack? Because it, it was Siskel. Um, he gave it three out of four stars as well, and he said that you know there's some things that don't work about it, but there's you know certain action scenes, and he singled out the coyote attack as a great moment. And I swear there's a moment where you can tell that somebody has thrown road <laughs> yeah. off screen, yeah. and to the point where I actually googled like. Who is the editor of this, and how are they trusted with it? It turns out it was like the guy who edited West Side Story, who's considered to be, oh, wow. you know, one of the greatest editors ever. And yeah, I mean, if all, if that's all they had to work with, um, because it suddenly it's becomes this this yeah, sort of these long take. takes of yeah. stuff, it beca- suddenly becomes this impression of, of like these flying, you know, moments of things. But I'm like, this just, it's that kind of like it's not quite new Hollywood, but it kind of is trying for it at moments, but it hasn't quite figured out where it sits. Like, if you compare it to McCabe and Mrs. Miller, which is another Mm. snowbound Western that has such a strong sense of voice and feel to it and everything. There, there, that that isn't there in Jeremiah Johnson. But it does feel, there's certain scenes where it does feel like the editors, you say, only had certain shots to work with one take. There's a, a fight scene in almost pitch black darkness where oh, yeah. I went, I don't know what happened. That was like watching that fight scene in Resident Evil uh, Extinction, <laughs> where you just went, no, too many cuts. Couldn't tell what's going on. And it was underlit. It was it was just a near impossibility of what was going on. But potentially that's all the footage they had because if, this, if mm. the shoot was as, you know, if this was revenant mm. quality suffering on the shoot. You I think there was a lot that. of footage, actually. I think right. they, they did shoot, but I mean, they, they said the dailies visual. were punishing to look at because it was just shot after shot of Robert Redford walking through the snow. Uh-huh. And it took seven and a half months to kind of actually find the film amidst all of it. Well, and, at the uh, end, there's, there's a montage of him doing things after he gets to a certain point. And it's like, yeah. there's a little montage. And I'm thinking, that yeah. must have taken weeks to shoot for what was then edited down into about oh, yeah. a minute and a half that that whole thing where yes. it's like the whole they're fighting all these people it's suddenly it's like oh this is like actually 
a whole act of the film that were just like just breaking into yeah. a little mm. montage of X3. like three point five suddenly turned up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, wanted its money back. John, John Milius said something in his thing that I related to, which is like, I don't understand what acts are. I've never written an act in my life. <laughs> um, you can tell. Yeah, but um, but I I can't imagine that his structure hewed closely to the final product. Mm. It seems just too much of a edited. Mm. Assemblage rather than get to more you know, people yeah, turning up. Yeah, I can only yeah. imagine what Peck and Power would have done with the same material. That would have been. I th- I would that, that think final it would act would have been something brutal. Else. Yes, <laughs> yeah. mm. absolutely brutal. Because you get no sense of what the cost of Jeremiah Johnson has been no. of this. Do you? Well, I suppose it's. I mean, he does. He he loses a family. Mm. No, and, but I mean the moral cost of him wreaking all that violence. Yeah. Oh, I yeah, see what you mean. Oh, and that's of course. That's, that's yeah, where, that's as a point. Said, that's the that's ending a sort of peck and paw kind yeah. of, yes, like, yes, of you course. know, that so you I go get, out like, and you yeah. you profit your um, revenge and then lose your soul in the yeah. process. But, straw dogs. but that wasn't the, um, I mean, that was the bit at the end. That wasn't the sort of, that wasn't what the whole film no. was about. If it was peck and paw, that would I be. I think that, that would have been what the film was yeah, about. about it, yeah. But it, yeah, it would have been about something. Yeah. It's so I don't think any of us were giving that a three it's, star. No, it's for me. It's a, it's a it's a Sunday afternoon film. It'd be one that you'd put a hat on on Sunday afternoon on TV back on the in the eighties, and it would have, you know, just played. Yeah. It's 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 there. It's not it's not terrible. I you know enjoyed no. bits of it as I say, but I, I would not sit down and watch two hours. And there's 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 several cuts of it. There is a, a shorter cut of it as well. So this was the full restored cut. Yeah. yeah. But um, yeah, it's for me. I've got to say I. I wouldn't really recommend it, but there is people who are going to like that that yeah. kind of that slightly slower pace. And also for people who use the internet, finally discovered where the meme of the big bearded guy turning around, looking at the camera, smiling and giving a slow slow nod comes from, which I literally <laughs> used the day before. Every time that someone wants to give somebody up uh, prop on props on Twitter, you get the big bearded guy and. I never knew where it came from. And I literally, I, in the middle of an empty room, went, holy shit, that's where it came from. <laughs> and I'll put wow. that on the Twitter account so you Beautiful. can see Robert Redford smiling and nodding at you. <laughs> <laughs> so after uh, a night sleeping off Jeremiah Johnson, the next day was February 16th, 1978 in the White House, where they thought they'd retire with a lovely romantic little Audrey Hepburn film <laughs> called oh. Wait Until Dark. And uh, at that point, uh, I don't know if Jimmy Carter knew Audrey Hepburn personally, but um, the connection there is that both of them are really famous as humanitarians. Um, Jimmy Carter is probably maybe a bit more famous, at least in my circles was, but Audrey Hepburn was heavily involved with UNICEF. UNICEF, yeah. And um, Carter's, uh, Carter had a more foundation called circles. the Carter Center, <laughs> yep. which partnered with UNICEF to uh, um, deliver aid organizations overseas. And in 1990, Hepburn and Carter co-hosted the Concert for Peace, along with Francois Mitterrand and Nelson Mandela, um, which is the same year that Carter presented Audrey Hepburn with the Child Survival Award on behalf of UNICEF. Um, so speaking of child survival awards, uh, <laughs> wait until dark. Well, wait until dark. Nineteen sixty-seven. Stephen King declared this the scariest movie of all time. Has he seen Human Centipede? <laughs> <laughs> that, that was in Dance Macabre, nineteen seventy-nine. So. Okay. And uh, yeah, and Alan Arkin's performance may be the greatest evocation of screen villainy ever. Let's just let wow. that one sit. 
It's uh, Wait Until Dark 1967. It is directed by Terence Young of James Bond th- fame. It, we have Audrey Hepburn, Alan Arkin, Ephraim Zimbalist Jr., Jack Weston and Richard Krenner. It's a play by Frederick Knott, who went on to um, also write a, another little-known play, Dial M for Murder. And it's produced by Mel Ferrer, who was Audrey Hepburn's husband. Oh. And uh, it was produced by Mel Ferrer. Now, they, um, it was a last-ditch effort to save their marriage, which ended a year later. Right. So it, it didn't quite work. It's so putting her in a film where she gets tormented the entire no, time. Didn't okay. work. Yes. No. And Audrey Hepburn um, wanted to be tormented the entire time in Europe. but um, And was lobbying for the film to be made in Europe. Um, but when she um, found out that... Um, that by not shooting it where it was shot, that other people would be losing their jobs. She uh, she chose to do it exactly where it was set. No. Do you mean that people who originally appeared in the stage play would not be able to be in it? Or, would you, or no, that they'd no. already been cast or something? No, just the crew. Oh, okay. Just, uh, it no, was, no, yeah, oh, well, that's, that's Audrey Hepburn all over. Hmm. Um, this film is a... a, a a creepy little thriller. It's um, it's the sort of thing that it, it, you think, oh, Audrey Hepburn's in it. It's going to be a lovely, warm <laughs> cuddle of a movie. <laughs> and um, it delivers a lot more than that. It's, um, it, shall we try for the story? Um, we've got some drug smuggling. Um, we've got some crooks trying to get the drugs back. We've got another crook who links up with or blackmails the crooks to um, to get in on the getting the drugs back. They, it's, there's a doll in a house that they're trying to get um, get these drugs back from, which happens to be Audrey Hepburn's. Audrey Hepburn can't see she is is very blind um and uh, it's and newly so which is an interesting yeah. part of the story mm. yeah like a year that she's yeah so, so she excellent i think she it's says. um and i didn't i've seen this film quite a few times before okay and but i didn't remember that part that she is she's a lot of the time she's fighting against it. It may well be her arc is that she comes mm. to um, appreciate a little bit of, of what her gifts are. Uh, and she's certainly, the, certainly the character is written as that kind of heightened, like even though she can't see, she can tell things that you wouldn't expect yeah. because of she the heightened hearing. So the villains are trying to um, get into her house to get this um, the MacGuffin, doll. The MacGuffin doll. The MacGuffin doll. Very <laughs> even much. though the villains are already in her house at the very start, we're talking for 15 mm. minutes. Absolutely. Which is... Because <laughs> it's a play, and it, mm. uh, yeah. it, it's apart from... One or two scenes that you definitely couldn't recreate on stage, or not easily. Um, it's it very much feels like a play. Mm. It couldn't feel more like a play if you 
just dolly back the camera and saw the footlights and yeah. somebody coughed behind you constantly yeah. and there was rustling paper in the office. Yeah, so, some people try to open mm. up plays and then there's Terence Young. This is this is a one-set play. Uh, there's a there's yes. one on location <coughs> and then there's, you know, the van scene, which you know, which comes back, you know, van and a, a telephone booth, which would have just been off the side of the, the stage. Yeah. And it, it, it is claustrophobically small is the yes. way I can describe it. and definitely claustrophobia is a, a major part of this well let me give you some knowledge nuggets to chew over um, <laughs> you can have some a, null nums all right yeah, <laughs> some, some knowledge num nums it's um, uh, during <laughs> during World War Two, a 16 year old Audrey Hepburn she was a volunteer nurse in a Dutch hospital one of the injured soldiers uh, that she nursed back to health was a young British paratrooper and future director, Terence Young. Whoa. Ooh. Yes, the world of Kawinkydink. <laughs> it's, um, now, Terence Young actually directed Audrey Hepburn again in 1979 in a much less heralded movie, Bloodline which was uh, based on a Sidney Sheldon novel, had uh, Ben Gazzara and James Mason in it. It was sort of like a pot-boiler thriller thing. I don't know. My mom had a bunch of Sidney Sheldon books. I I think everybody's mother had (laughs) books, yeah. (laughs) Now, as as a way to get people to see the movie, the filmmakers, they made a print ad and a cautionary trailer that read... During the last eight minutes of this picture, the theatre will be darkened to the legal limit to heighten the terror of the breathtaking climax, which takes place in nearly total darkness on screen. If there are sections where smoking is permitted, those patrons are respectfully requested not to jar the effect by lighting up during the sequence. And of course, no one will be seated at this time. With eight minutes left. Well, I mean, and that it was, works. That was that was the era. You went in when you went in. That's you watched true. it, yeah. and then you watched until you got back to the where you came in, and then you left. Uh, it works, though. So. Yeah, apparently so. Because I know. Oi, oi, I have knowledge sorry. nugget. <laughs> sorry, <laughs> <laughs> we'll come back to this. Eat your nugget. <laughs> you have your fucking num nums. <laughs> num 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 num. Yeah, don't don't make me go Ray Winston on your way. <laughs> you just did. <laughs> <laughs> so it did work, and the the film became a huge success. But you're right; it's that was the whole thing. I mean, um, Psycho had mm. a very similar yeah. thing later. where yeah. they wouldn't let uh, if you came in after the film had begun. They wouldn't let you wouldn't come you in went. after yeah. the film had yeah, begun. Yeah, basically, Psycho was the one really the one that really changed a lot of that attitude of you know you can just walk in any time. I remember the old. Bugs Bunny cartoons where they'd have someone getting up in silhouette and they'd be like, where you go? Oh, this is where I came in. And then he'd go and tell the other character what was happening. Right, yeah. And as a kid, I didn't get that. And then later on, with the Psycho trailer, it was like, ah, mm. ah, ah, It's, um, so, uh, oh, role of Harry Rote. Hard to cast. Now, Harry Rote is the psycho, the super psycho villain. The, yes. The mucho psycho yes. of the piece. Very hard to cast. Producers couldn't find actors willing to cast in such a villainous role. It wasn't only the fact that uh, he was terrorising a blind woman, but that they were t- he was terrorising the m- much-beloved Audrey Hepburn. <laughs> you, you go to movie jail for less. Yes, you'll get punched in the streets. Oh, that's, that's a cancelled thing. Why don't you, know? you just it's kick Shirley Temple down the road, you bastard? Absolutely, <laughs> and, and many people have wanted to. <laughs> 
And I this is taking a weird turn. <laughs> <laughs> Alan Arkin, uh, he later said that uh, how easy it was for him to get cast for that very reason. No one, no else, one else wanted it. <laughs> it's, I believe Sean Connery was up for the role. Now, that would have been a very interesting... That character. would have been something. <laughs> Probably I, not something Much good. like my accent. <laughs> it would have been something indeed. <laughs> now, it's... Um, uh, f- now, oh, I, uh, uh, yes, I did want to talk about this. I'm, I'm uh, much less organised than the rest of you lot, but um, in order to create a sense of unease, the film's composer, Henry Mancini, because the music is nerve jangly from the start he had his two pianists that was Pearl Kaufman and Jimmy Rolls play instruments tuned a quarter tone apart oh okay and it's uh, he was unsure if it would work he um, he was um, having a, a few takes of the opening and it wasn't until um, Pearl asked if he if she could take a break as it was making her feel ill <laughs> so that made it like we got gold. Yeah, it, that's it exactly. Which and is a real, real difference from our first movie. We've got to mention Citizens Van was scored by Bill Conti of yes. the Right Stuff fame, mm-hmm. but there's about three minutes of music in it. He just yes. turns up here occasionally and then fades Did out. Did you in look about into seconds. that, or could you? I find couldn't find it. Like there's about a, there's why. like one acoustic guitar track, and there's one I fell asleep on a Moog moment. Yeah, and that's pretty much it. And I couldn't find any reason as to why Bill Conti would have been hired to produce so little music. But there's a lot yeah. of Mancini music in this one. You know, so um, at least we balance it out between our films. Hmm. And but Jeremiah Johnson and uh, Wait Until Dark both end with a song, but you might be getting to that. No. no. Oh, so they, um, but um, Jeremiah Johnson's actually resembles the plot, whereas Wait Until Dark is just kind of a happy, like, what happens when we wait until dark? You know, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah it's, it's, I don't think they were told the plot when they wrote the yeah. song. <laughs> it's got Audrey Hepburn, it's called Wait Until Dark. Oh, romantic comedy. Yeah. <laughs> well, it was a slightly happy ending yeah. by that point, so it's uh, reunited <laughs> yeah. lovers and such. Now, Audrey Hepburn herself, it's, um, this was, uh, Wait Until Dark was nestled between Two for the Road which was a uh, Sidney Donan? Stanley Donan. Stanley Do- thank you. Yep. Um, th- th- thank you, movie police. <laughs> uh, Stanley Donan um, movie. I am Doug B. <laughs> <laughs> I hope it's, he's not the 70s police. <laughs> beaten up with a, um, my, yellow pages. My, my sideburns aren't nearly long. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> uh, that, was, uh, that was Audrey Hepburn and Albert Finney. Um, a film about a um, a couple who are uh, taking a, a road trip, and um, we see in flashback how their marriage has um, gone off the rails. It's, um, I haven't seen it, but I've heard very good things. And the other film is she actually retired from film in wait and uh, after wait until dark. So that was uh, as said, nineteen sixty seven. She didn't do another film until 1976, but she was offered quite a few roles. It's, um, I've just picked a few here, some of the, the choice nuggets, um, such as Nicholas and Alexandra, The Exorcist, and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Nurse wow. Ratched? Well, who else? What is it's either that or the prostitutes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there ain't a lot of choices. She's got range. 
It would be wow. uh, an exorcist would have been wow, very interesting. Would have been, it would have been interesting. Uh, yeah. I mean, because yeah. I can't. I mean, Alan Barkin just burst. Burst. Yeah, yeah. The, yeah. That's the one. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. It's don't hit me with the yellow paper. <laughs> yeah, there's thumping sticks over here. <laughs> <laughs> but that would have been such a, a different mm. kind. It would have been a different movie. Mm. Because it's because um, Ellen Burstyn, it's uh, she had such a sort of lived-in kind of um, movie star feel. It was, it there wasn't a glamour to it. It was no. just, it was just a normal normal mother, yeah, yeah. A normal person, yeah, a normal mother who was a movie star. Yeah. But it was, but, yeah, in the film. But uh, but Audrey Hepburn would have been something, maybe a bit more brittle. Yes, yeah, more plausibly fragile, perhaps. Although she's been obviously plucky and resilient and uh, charade. Absolutely, and, films and, and let's yeah. talk about plausible because I think she. Um, we watched another film last week where we saw a blind woman. Oh yes, so there's two ways to go when discussing plausible in this film. I thought you were going the other way, but uh, yes, in terms of her performance as a blind woman. Yes, um, very yeah, I yeah. I never thought about her performance being anything less than convincing whereas Absolutely. we watched uh, See No Dark last week a Richard Fleischer film starring uh, Mia Farrow See No Evil See No Evil excuse me See No Dark there we go now, we're oh, now, right. now who's Wait the movie police Wait until Evil and See No Dark yes. whoop, whoop. that's the sound of the movie police Put <laughs> <laughs> you down on your knees but yeah but Mia Farrow is a blind person oh, who's very good at over that <laughs> sir Ma- very good at making eye contact yeah. uh, throughout and that's uh no, she, her performance was was fantastic. As you know, you know, she, she did actually go and study. You know, mm. she, which apparently she right. went and did a lot of research beforehand. You know, with visually impaired people to see the sort of things that she would bring yes, to that Terrence performance. Young and you and can her both see that. Went. You can really see right. that. But she couldn't. No. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Oh, that's the only one. One of those jokes we'll make tonight. <laughs> All right. I can't promise that. Now we're calling the ableist police. <laughs> which. So, um, so, so what did you think of the film now? Well, have I've, you seen it before? I had never seen it before. I had read that Stephen King uh, quote before because I've got Dance Macabre. Uh, three and a half stars from Glenna Moulton, three and a half stars from Roger Ebert. Uh, Academy Award nomination for Audrey Hepburn. Did I like it? No. <laughs> surprise, su- surprise. I was expecting to really enjoy it. I watched it last night and it the first half made me simultaneously bored and frustrated and I haven't... It just felt like I was watching a play, not a movie. Yeah. And the plot is such a play plot. It's so <laughs> intricate. There's people mm. running in and out of doors like a French farce. Oh, yeah. <laughs> constantly. And Roger Ebert's three and a half out of four star review, he says that he loves everything, but why didn't she lock the door? And he mentions <laughs> that four times. Lock the door. Lock the door. He, he talks about what he called the idiot plot, which yeah. is where... The plot couldn't happen unless someone was an idiot. Yeah. And in this case, it's her because, yes, she is in a horrendous situation. She's visually impaired. She's got people who are trying to get into her apartment. She's now realized that these people are all evil, but she doesn't do the logical things. For instance, she sends a 12-year-old girl out to meet her husband in 1967 on 42nd Street. And I looked at pictures of 1967 uh, 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 42nd Street, and on one side there's some amazing uh, epic movies playing, and on the other side is Street of Shame and assorted porn on the other side. So 
And he was said, send her to the police. Send her to the police. The Audrey so, Hepburn walks past, the porn cinemas <laughs> would just fall down. Oh, yes. Yeah. They she just would. wouldn't exist she in would. her world. But it's it, the, the entire plot of this, because it's, my brain was just in, I was in realist mode, because I'm thinking right. if you've got three Howden crooks and you've got a woman who's by herself, who's pretty much defenseless, and you want to get into her apartment to find this MacGuffin doll, you walk and tie her up. And you rip the place apart. You don't change costumes multiple times to fool a blind woman. You yeah. don't come up with a plot that involves three people who have two of whom have only just met the other one, having to play a perf- picture perfect role, and just constantly inc- having these these incredibly well thought out plans that they seem to have come up with on the spur of a fifteen minute conversation. Yeah, it in the real world it wouldn't work until it got to the final act, and the. The way I put it, the moment that the lights went out, yeah. mm. I was invested. Yeah. The finale of the film is fucking fantastic. Yeah. Up to that point, your mileage may vary. A lot of people seem to love it. I just could not get into it. And as I say, it was it was claustrophobic, but not in the right way for me. I love claustrophobic horror movies. Things like when I first saw Saw, without yeah. ever seeing anything mm-hmm. about Saw, and it's in this one room... And it's claustrophobic. The movie The Descent, which is literally claustrophobic. Uh-huh. And I'm in a full-size theatre, but I'm still feeling the walls closing in on me. And this one, I just felt she was going to touch the walls and they were going to fall down because they were the sets on a Broadway production. So, Well, the thing is, I mean, you can say it's claustrophobic, but I didn't actually feel like directorially anything was made it to feel claustrophobic. It was just like this was a room and we were shooting the room yeah. and we were always at about the same distance. Mm. And like, I mean, watching See No Evil was really instructive because that's a film where the physical space is felt so deeply in the tension mm. of that person moving around that space mm. and everything about the physicality and how you feel in that. I mean, whether or not her performance always works, where the camera is and makes such a difference Mm. but also that film you have no idea why she's in this situation and so you're with her and so it's you know it's it's a whole different the tension um, level is different you never know who it gives you hints of who may be the person that you see but you only see them from the waist down you only see their boots and the camera uses beautiful tricks and see no evil to make sure that you don't know until it wants you to know who that is. I fucking loved See No Evil. Yeah. Yes, her performance, you look at, you go, and she's not vision impaired. She, she can see perfectly. She's making eye contact with people. But the story invested me perfectly. It swept me right into it. Yeah, so yeah. some of the contrivance at the end with didn't really work for me. But um, but I, I fundamentally loved the filmmaking of the first two-thirds of that mm. so much. Yeah. And there was enough that I liked at the end. I, I thought the... Boyfriend in it had the charisma of a bag of <laughs> wet oats. Yes, but, yeah. Um, but here it's just yeah. I I really struggled with the start of it as well, um, and just this lengthy Alan Arkin sitting around this apartment giving this lecture for fifteen minutes about how he's going to con these yeah. two guys into helping him. And again, like you say, this just it just seems like the long, long way around the bush to. Do do tie somebody up and just hit them a couple times and mm. you know because we've already established that he's willing to kill quite mm. early so it's like and Alan Arkin's incredibly watchful in just about everything he does and the moment he started talking I went 
the accent threw me because he was doing kind of a, an Italian, right. kind of almost a mobstery accent. And then later on he changes, you know, he disguises himself dozen, as yeah, yeah. half a dozen times into different people. And it just felt like, okay, this is the Alan Arkin showcase we're watching, showing him to do all those towns. Apparently this play won a, a Tony Award uh, and mm. yeah, he, he wasn't, wasn't in it, but... You can really feel that that Robert Duvall egg. was. Oh, Robert really? Duvall. Was he the Alan Arkin? Robert Duvall was the Alan, Alan Arkin, Arkin. and it's yeah. you can see that that you need that sort of actor who is, if you're going to have this plot runs of him constantly changing personas to try and fool this woman, you're going to need an actor who is that mm. versatile. But it just came across as, as for me, as just completely, as I say, contrived. It, it didn't feel like it was necessary for them to do everything they did. Well, that's the theater, so, though. So I it feel is, I yeah, feel like exactly. we've we've yeah. kind of given the uh, negative side of the debate. <laughs> um, you, I think you obviously have seen it a couple times. I'm in times an and... island on my own. I, I <laughs> but, but, but tell us what it's like there. <laughs> <laughs> it's an lovely <laughs> island. It's, uh, read from the tourist brochure. People who like it. I'll give you a tour of my lovely island of the rich and fatty. No, it's. It's a theatre piece, and um, it is a true theatre piece where you it's you leave reality at the door. It's your expectation. It doesn't have to, because that's a thing about what theatre. A lot of theatre was created for is it doesn't have to ha- make as much sense as a film does, because film has uh, ha- is tethered to reality in the most part. With theatre, not so much. Now, this is a film that really? I was... Why do you say that? I feel like the exact opposite's true. Really? You it depends need... what you see. You don't need you don't need humans in film. Well, it's... <laughs> you, can, you can scratch on a piece of celluloid and you've got a film. Yeah, but you don't... But theatre is bigger performances. It's... It's a it's a different style right. So of you're acting. talking about the style of acting, mm-hmm. the style of acting, yes. and yeah. therefore the style of writing can be, especially in that period. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, I mean, Dial M for Murder is not a a story that could hold mm-hmm. would hold up either in terms of uh, of logic. Logic, yeah. But that's but you just you forgive it. And you move on. It's uh, and but Doctor Strangelove, to take an example, yeah, of a film, you know, is is yeah. not exactly a paragon of logic, but it, that's you right. Know, you know. And you forgive it, and you move on. Yeah, I mean, it's got one of my favorite musicals of all time is Guys and Dolls, and it's when you see the movie, the movie feels like a play, but it's got something about it that does mm. suck you in there, that you know that mm. you become part of this world. That's it. Whereas in this one, I just was not able to, to find and, a way to work myself in there. And the difference here is that I was introduced this by my auntie's probably... I might have been 11 or 12 or something mm. around there. So I would have seen it on video from the glorious Vidion. <laughs> um, Rest in peace. Yes. Or a few pieces of their collection are in mine. Pouring <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> one out for the last of the video stores yeah. in Auckland. Yeah, spectacles, testicles, wallet, and watch. That's uh, <laughs> uh, that's that it. made more sense if you had the visual. That just, <laughs> you don't know what he's talking about. He just crossed himself. Cause that was <laughs> weird. A, it, that was uh, from Nuns on the Run. It was indeed. <laughs> Robbie Coltrane. Anyway, back to back on track. But um, yeah, so I I have a nostalgic. Right attachment to this movie, but it's 
regardless of that, I think Audrey Hepburn's great, and I, I definitely, I love me some of the Hepburn. Um, Do you feel like a perform a good performance will carry you through a mediocre movie, and that you like the performance so much that you're oh, not absolutely. bothered? Absolutely, yeah. and I, for I'm me, totally I love the opposite. Like the movies that win Academy Awards because of the acting that don't win any other awards are almost always the ones I'll skip. Oh, right. right. It's, it's like if the only thing it has going for it is a good performance, it's like, I'd rather see a good performance in a good movie. <laughs> right. It's And sometimes a good performance is the only thing that can get you through a film for me. It's Because yeah. uh, the rest of it just falls down. Um, but yeah, it's... I think Alan Arkin, I... It's... It may have been a bit stagey, but I loved it. And I... It's... And the amazing um, jump at the end. And yes, there yeah. that one gets mentioned. I mean, we won't say exactly what it is, but every review of it says that in the at the time, nine six seven, that was the entire audience would scream moment. That was that was the the spider out of the, the mm. dream pipe, and I can see that happening because. And that's again, the birth of Michael Myers right there, isn't and it? And once again, I was watching this at home alone. Lights off in that final bit to try yeah. and get, and it was at night to try and get that. But I'm, when that hit, I thought if that was a theater. Yeah, that would have got people. And as I say, I was invested for that. Those last 20, 25 minutes, it was, yeah, it was fantastic. And I can see where that really, a lot of people have yeah. such fond memories of that. As an aside, I got about a half hour into this. I'm like, holy crap, I've seen this before. When I was 17 or 16, oh. I was at a friend's house and there were a bunch of people and their parents had rented this old movie that they really liked. And they, I think it might have been like a, alternative halloween night or i don't know what the reason was but and i i dimly remembered it was like something in an apartment and you know there was an element of what happens at the end that i re remembered and i i think i tried to track down one or two other films i thought it might be and it wasn't and i ne and it just sort of you know was something i never really thought about and then suddenly it's like oh it's this film and and that was kind of what kept me hanging in there through the parts. I, I did enjoy Arkin's performance, even though it's ludicrous. I yeah, and mm. I enjoyed Krenna's performance actually. Krenna was a lot because he brings such a lovely human side yes. to this weird ass story, you know. And that's, um, I mean, Arkin's almost often like, um, you know, Little own. Murders Land or something, yes. you know. And then, but like Krenna, you feel the pull of like. The, the humanity or something whereas yeah, Arkin is just like the the literal psychopath uh. there's no humanity there but uh, it's it was um, originally it was something that just pulled me along and I have since become a, a, a huge fan of Alan Arkin's work I mean, yeah. Freebie and the Bean we've talked about Little yeah. Murders which he directed Gross Point Blank <laughs> yes it's um, and so yeah, I, it's it's a film I really enjoy. It's a film I will return to again because I just enjoy it a lot. There's um, and and the the, the 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 those last twenty minutes are great, and the fucking fridge. <laughs> it's, everything falls. She never down. defrosted it. Never defrosted the fridge. No, uh, no. Just like it's that che was, that was Chekhov's defrosting on. process. <laughs> you know, it's like it's I, just I, sitting I, there. I, I like our ludicrously specific connection there because 
that the final scene ends up in almost total darkness and what of Jonathan Demme's famous movies ends up in almost total darkness Silence of the Lambs mm-hmm. we've got little connections there there's all sorts of connections that we've had in there and I made a big list of them and I completely lost it halfway through so <laughs> as usual I'm well prepared for the end of this uh, podcast so yeah I, I enjoyed it a lot it's, um, but I can actually I can understand why both of you didn't get it. I, it's um, and it's. I mean, it's, yeah, I liked it better than Steve. Mm, but yeah. I, 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 I was it, expecting yeah. to like it. I was, yeah. you know, I like Audrey Hepburn. I, you know, it's, it came across. You know, I read a thing before saying it's Audrey Hepburn's only true horror movie. Even once again, a thing that a lot of people call a thriller, but I think Stephen King called a horror. Mm. And as I say, I was just going, "Why am I not liking this?" And sometimes you get that. You never know what's going to hit, what's going to not. Mm. You know. Mm. But that's, that's a real, I mean, I like Tank Girl. There's a lot of people who tell me yeah. I'm an idiot for well, liking Tank Girl. That's the joy of loving movies, isn't <laughs> yeah. it? I mean, it's um, all of us are wrong and one of us is right. You can't see I'm going glad that he's recognized that finally that I'm the uh, worst well, reason here. I, so I, think, I think on that note of unity, we might wrap up and, uh, and the, we should have some interesting things to talk about next time because Doug has challenged me to watch a Palm d'Or winner before our next podcast, which I shall. And I'm tossing up between Parasite, which I should have seen by now, and Dancer in the Dark. So, um, oh, the look on his face. <laughs> that, that's the, do I give him the um, fun choice or the tough choice? <laughs> <laughs> oh, and the, do the, the like, subscribe, and review yes. type stuff. Yes, yeah, Darren's worried that nobody actually listens. So uh, <laughs> if not. you do we, listen, we let us know. Them. And you Pop know, up to Atwood Spitcast on Twitter. Drop us a line. Drop us a question. Tell us we're ready. It's, you know. No, I, I know people listen, but I'd like to know that there are some strangers who listen. <laughs> I think we're all pretty strange here. Take care, y'all. Good night.